Oh, it certainly is, ladies and gentlemen. Members of the FDNY Fire Department of New York is a family, an extended family, that goes to the fact that there are retirees who continue to stay in touch with their ladder companies, their firehouses where they serve, even though they may be scattered all over the country in retirement. And then there are the active firefighters and the chiefs and many of them who live side by side in a firehouse establishment somewhere in the five boroughs, day in and day out. Sometimes on uh, 24, 48-hour shifts, then there's the firefighters who are on the boats, the specialized firefighters, the fire marshals. But sometimes when a firefighter perishes in the line of duty, under a normal circumstance uh, while fighting fires, we don't sometimes give them the attention that they're due. Obviously, we all think back to the many, many firefighters who were sick and injured and those who perished in the attack of 9-11. Incredible number. And I'll never forget that our uh, Michael Mbaricic here at WABC, Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor at that time, went to an endless number of funerals and wakes as he considered to be part of his duties for the firefighters, for the police officers, for the other first responders. But as uh, we speak here, you have firefighters galore, both active and retired, lined up outside of Brookdale Hospital, which is in the heart of Brownsville, sort of a triplex area separating it from East Flatbush and where I was born and raised, Canarsie, but where I also I lived in Brownsville, Osborne, and Hegeman. And uh, this is an issue where this firefighter, young man, heroic, age 31, on the job, six years, apparently became separated from his comrades while fighting a fire earlier in the day. And on first report, suffered cardiac arrest inside of the residence where the fire had broken out at 10826 Avenue N, where he was found. Others uh, claim that uh, when his firefighter comrades found him and they put him on a stretcher and carried him to an awaiting uh, ambulance to take him to Brookdale, that he was uh, blue-faced and lifeless at the time. And understand when that call goes out for the firefighters to respond, oftentimes they don't know necessarily what they're jumping into. In this case, it was a fire that required 33 separate fire department uh, units, ladder companies, engine companies, associated uh, ancillary groups uh, assigned to the companies. And they had to go in and fight a fire that apparently quickly became a three-alarm fire. And they found a very heavy fire on two floors of the building. Firefighter Timothy Klein was part of the nozzle team, one of the first firefighters to enter the burning building. From what I know, and those of you who are cognoscentes, who are either professional firefighters uh, or volunteer firefighters or are retired. 
Uh, if you could explain to our audience what the nozzle team is, I think I know what it is, but uh, I stand to be corrected. When I've seen uh, nozzle teams in action, generally my sense was that they were providing the constant flow of water that was needed to fight the fire, that they had to uh, reach out to the uh, Johnny Pump, as we called it when we were kids. Nobody really calls it that any longer, or the fire hydrant, and make sure that the pressure was adequate, because a lot of times they'll roll up on a scene and the Johnny Pump, a.k.a. the fire hydrant, does not have enough water nor enough pressure. And then they have to use ancillary means. And this is all done in lickety-split time. Apparently, while the firefighters had descended into the building, uh, it appeared to be a routine fire at that point. And then suddenly the entire second floor became engulfed. So much so, a ball of fire went rolling through. And some of the firefighters, they had to heave ho. They had to jump out of the open windows uh, and jump to the floor below. Some of them were on the second floor. Incredible, incredible, fast-moving fire. And clearly some of you out there who have fought fires in the past would know if it were possibly moving through the ceiling, moving through the walls, moving through the roof, maybe the result of... um, too many, uh, too many electrical lines being used or other malfunctioning uh, housing items that contributed to the fire. We won't know until the firefighters release a report on this. Unfortunately, five of our firefighters were injured. But it is at this time that we have to report the death of Timothy Klein, the 31-year-old son of a retired firefighter who comes from a family, of extended family of firefighters. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. If any of you are chiefs, any of you are active firefighters, volunteer firefighters, have fought fires uh, in the past, retired, anyone that can bring us clarity as to how these fires can immediately appear to be normal and then with a quick explosion, just engulf an entire building, forcing fire hydrants, fighters to actually have to heave hold, jump out open windows where they themselves would be consumed by the fire, the flames, or choked out by the smoke, the black smoke, which is endless. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This parish hero firefighting uh, six-year veteran Timothy Klein was attached to a ladder company that I know well, Ladder Company 170 in Canarsie. I believe it's still where it was when I was a kid, Rockaway Parkway, Farragut. Uh, He is the 1,157th member of the New York City Fire Department to die in the line of duty. And Klein actually gave the eulogy for his fellow firefighter, Stephen Pollard. In 2019, after Pollard was killed at the scene of a car crash on the Bell Parkway, when he fell through a gap in the roadway to his death, Pollard also, uh, if memory serves me correct, Stephen Pollard, uh, actually came from that same ladder company, 170 in Canarsie and Rockaway Parkway, which at times has been a very busy firehouse. 
I remember as a kid, they'd be racing to assist firehouses across Linden Boulevard in Brownsville, in which arson was just chewing up tenements as landlords were torching them uh, for the insurance money. Gangs like the Tomahawks and the Jolly Stompers were torching buildings just for the hell of it. Homeless uh, individuals and junkies who would go into these uh, empty tenements would end up in, uh, inadvertently setting up fires, whether to keep warm or to cook their uh, heroin before injecting it and start fires. And, and that firehouse would actually respond to the what we call the lots. These were the open fields in Canarsie before there were all the subdivisions, before there was the boom of the two-family, three-family homes uh, now are everywhere in Canarsie. At one time, they were open. There'd be all kinds of fires, sometimes by arsonists, sometimes by pyromaniacs. Remember how they would pull the fire alarm? That's how you got the fire department to a location. You didn't call from your house phone. Sometimes you did, but you actually walked out, or you found a firebox, you pulled the alarm, And at the station house, at the uh, fire department uh, location, they would know exactly where they had to go. And I remember there were some pyromaniacs. Guys, they they just got a thrill by watching fire and then watching the firefighters respond to it. And they'd be the first one standing there and they'd be the last one standing there. And sometimes the fire marshals would look at that young guy and say, let's bring him in for questioning. Because this fire doesn't doesn't seem to make sense. There's not a rhyme or reason to this. And it's clear that Stephen Pollard, in giving his life at that time on the Bell Parkway, didn't care about himself. He was trying to help others. And how ironic that so much later, three years later, that Timothy Klein, who gave his eulogy, would himself died on his way to Brookdale University Hospital after uh, fighting an intense flame and choking smoke. I'm trying to remember the last firefighter was out in uh, the Rockaways, if memory serves me correctly, far Rockaway. 33-year-old Jesse Gerhardt, who uh, had responded to a fire uh, I think it was Ladder Company, 134 Central Avenue in Far Rockaway. They rushed him to St. John's Episcopal Hospital. Not on the day of the fire. He seemed to be okay. He and his colleagues survived putting out the fire. Uh, I think it was on Beach Channel Drive. But the day after, while he was in the firehouse, he suddenly collapsed. And his colleagues, the EMTs, brought him to St. John's Episcopal Hospital. Years ago, it would have been Peninsula Hospital, but they've closed so many hospitals that you have to go further on. And if they didn't have St. John's Episcopal Hospital right before you get to five towns from Bayswater, they would have had to take him, transport him all the way to Jamaica Hospital. Something wrong with that. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. But on that day, that was February, they had been inside the firefighters' a three-story home on uh, Beach Channel Drive. I think off Beach 25th Street. Not quite sure. I, I lived actually in that area at the Ocean View Development in 1973. Uh, I was a bit of a masochist. Uh, I was working in McDonald's all the way up in the Bronx, White Plains Road, Allerton Avenue. I would take the A train 
just extraordinarily dangerous as it would leave Far Rockaway, the last stop in Far Rockaway, slowly move towards Broad Channel, um, and then from Broad Channel to Howard Beach. Sometimes when the winds were really gusting up, it would crawl, and the thugs, the thugs and thugettes would roam up and down the train, and you could easily have been mugged, and many people were at that time. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that when there weren't enough cops, when cops were being laid off in the 70s because of fiscal restraint, not as it is now, but being laid off because it wasn't money, not being laid off because they took a billion dollars out of the police budget, that's what de Blasio and the city council did, that oftentimes if you were a victim of a crime, you'd run into a firehouse. You would seek sanctuary in the nearby firehouse. I remember firehouses, they had to basically... Lock down everything when they'd go to fight a fire because people in the neighborhood would break into the firehouse or they'd steal their cars or vandalize their cars. I remember it was right on 183rd, Jerome Avenue under the number four train L. The firehouse there had steel gates outside and they had to park their cars in cages because the local people would attack the equipment of the firefighters. Or when I was a kid in Brownsville, East New York, and John Lindsay was the mayor, and he would say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't a riot. No, it wasn't a riot. It, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't a rebellion. It was a disturbance. Get out of here. It was a full-scale riot. And they were torching those buildings. And I remember the firefighters would show up. they pull the hose out. they put water to the fire. And then there'd be people on rooftops of nearby tenements throwing bottles and bricks at them and garbage cans and capping shots in their direction, trying to hurt the firefighters. It got so bad that the firefighters wouldn't go to a fire scene until the police gave them an escort from the 7-5 precinct in East New York or the 7-3 precinct in the heart of Brownsville or the 6-9 precinct in Canarsie. That's how bad things were. And even worse in the South Bronx, that was the arson belt near Freeman and Simpson. They were torching up buildings all the time. In fact, you may have remembered that famous moment in Yankee Stadium. Yankees win! Yankees win! Another World Series. It's Reggie Jackson. Uh, there wasn't enough Goulden's mustard to smear all over him as the biggest hot dog in all the sports. But boy, did he deliver Reggie Jackson. Boom! Three home runs. Game six against Tommy Lasorda's Dodgers. And as he was rounding the bases... At the time, broadcasting nationally was a noted uh, sportscaster who had come from the West Bank. That's what they called it at the time, the West Bank and the Bronx. And he had described how he had lived in that tenement just a few blocks away from Yankee Stadium, which was rocking with another world championship against the Dodgers. And then he made that announcement that because of the arson, because of the gangs, because of the crime, George Steinbrenner, owner and operator, majority owner uh, of the uh, New York Yankees, was planning to take the Yankees out of Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built, a real baseball stadium, not like the one that replaced it. Oh, my God, it's like a mall. You know, the one dedicated to Jeter at Aroid. God, I hate that place. But the old Yankee Stadium, who's going to move it to the Meadowlands, the caucus, were the only thing at that time was, like, 1976, uh, they buried bodies from organized crime and garbage. And I said, well, disgraziato, what a shanda. But in each and every one of those occasions, firefighters were always pressed into service. 
firefighters had to go into those abandoned buildings. Firefighters had to deal with arson. The fire marshals sometimes were working 24-7, 365. So in the aftermath of this horrible tragedy, which is now responsible for another firefighter dying in the light of duty, remember his name, Timothy Klein, the age of 31, ended up being consumed by smoke and fire and uh, either passed away on his way to Brookdale Hospital or died uh, while trying to be revived, while they were trying to give him CPR, while they were pressing uh, his chest to try to get life back into his soul. But as uh, witnesses had mentioned, uh, outside of the uh, burning building, he was being carried out by his colleagues on a stretcher, blue-faced and lifeless at that time. So we need you to respond. Those of you who are professional firefighters, maybe active, it doesn't mean you had to be part of the FDNY. Could have been uh, involved with affiliated departments in the tri-state area and beyond. Volunteer firefighters, a lot of people don't realize how many towns, how many villages don't have professional firefighters who are housed in their firefight, uh, firefighting locations, ready to respond 24-7, 365. They are dependent on volunteers. I've seen them out on Staten Island. I've seen them in Nassau County. I've seen them in Suffolk County. And I know they exist in other parts that are hearing the 50,000 powerful watts of sound that, as dusk has come upon us, is now heard in 38 states, parts of Canada, and slivers of Europe, And down where the Bahamas and Bermuda touched together at the entrance of Davy Jones's locker. So let's test out all the uh, discronificators and the spectometers because I have on board here Frank Morano's crew. Matt, the uh, board operator who I am very suspicious of, I got to tell you straight out. Seems every time there's a shift change from the crew that I have on the overnights, the other other side of midnight... Saturday mornings from 12 midnight to 6, Sunday mornings from 12 midnight to 6, and now into my final phase of weekend broadcasting where ABC stands for Always Broadcasting Curtis. I got to inherit the Frank Morano crew. And I have no idea what they're doing with the discronificator, which processes all of the calls from uh, the AM tower in Lodi most powerful news talk radio station in the nation. And recently, if you uh, heard of the ratings, back to where we needed to be, where we used to be, revived, resuscitated like Lazarus from the dead by our owner and operators, John and Margot Katsimatidis, celebrating Eastern Orthodox Easter uh, today as Greek Orthodox, but also celebrating the success of turning WABC once again, taking it from the trash heap to recycling bin into the number one news talk station in the nation. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And as we discuss the valiant work of firefighters, oftentimes who go unrecognized, never get their due, people... uh, People don't even visit their firehouses at times. You know, when they have food drives or toy drives uh, around Christmas or Thanksgiving, uh, they do. Uh, But I've had the benefit of spending time in firehouses around the city, especially in the heart of the South Bronx. Brian and Seneca, 
Hunts Point. Man, that was bad. In the mid-80s, the late 80s, when it was the age of crack cocaine, and there were like zombies from Dawn of the Dead roaming about 24-7, all those abandoned buildings that had been turned into shooting galleries. Thugs everywhere, drug dealers everywhere. You had, remember, the hookers of Hunts Point. They were everywhere, roaming about, and those greasy-haired pimps exploiting, exploiting those women who at times looked like skeletal features. I remember there was always a person I could depend on. His name was Eddie Brown, maybe the toughest white guy ever to exist in New York City. Proud, one of our first guardian angels from Zariga Avenue in the Bronx. Lifelong firefighter, and now he is the treasurer of the union, the UFA. And I tell everybody out there, oh, Eddie Brown is your treasurer, huh? Have you checked under what's under his Serta Perfect sleeper mattress, huh? You're making sure that uh, all your funds are in the bank, banked away, invested in the pension fund? No, 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 the guy's just straight out. In fact, it was one time Eddie Brown had uh, accompanied me to Cleveland to organize the Guardian Angels. Great martial artist, great fighter. And then to Sin City, New Orleans, whatever happens in uh, New Orleans, stays in New Orleans. And as I was talking on the corner of, of Canal, Canal Street, right right in the beginning of the French Quarter, it attracted quite a crowd because they've always had a serious crime problem uh, then and now. It's been contiguous. I don't know who was worst at times, the street thugs, the drug dealers, the pimps. Uh, managing their prostitutes in Sin City or the cops themselves who were crooked right down to the marrow of their bone. And naturally, the sheriff's deputies, because that was the parish of Orleans. And it was Sheriff Foti at the time who had that uh, Beretta-style uh, parrot on his shoulder. He was feeding him crackers. He said, you, you mind your P's and Q's here. You and this other guy from New York. Remember, I run the parish. Hey, I'm not arguing with that. So I'm giving a speech right there in the corner of uh, Canal Street and Bourbon. Uh, must have been a crowd of about maybe 200 people, some tourists, but some locals. And an emotionally disturbed white guy comes through the crowd. He's got his hand in a paper bag. He's got his hand on a revolver. And you know me, I'm distracted when I'm giving a speech. That's it. I'm only focused on the speech. I'm not looking into the crowd. Eddie Brown was bird-dogging him, a mad-dogging him, I fornicating him. He pulls the gun out of the bag. He's like six feet away from me. He's aiming it to my head, mumbling to himself, probably said, you're going to your maker right now. And had he clicked and kept clicking, I'd be dead on arrival. No way would I have survived that. Out of nowhere, Eddie Brown throws this vicious spinning hook kick and then an axe kick, and the guy is sucking concrete. And then finally... The uh, New Orleans police get there, and, you know, they're all assigned to the gin mills. They're in uniform. They're in the bars, which was a shock to me when I first went there. What? Cops in, in uniforms, in bars? Yeah, that, that's their posts. And they yeah, they took them away. And then me and Eddie Brown were walking down uh, near uh, Jackson Square, which is in front of the cathedral right near the levees at night. And we noticed Eddie Brown says to me, Curtis. Look who's coming our way. It was the same freaking guy. They had sent him for a psychiatric observation at the municipal hospital, cut him loose like they do here. He had had the wristband on that indicated that he had been their patient. He had escaped. 
Although he didn't have a gun or a knife or anything else, he didn't even recognize us. And actually, we were styling and profiling in the red beret and the red sateen jackets. But the guy was so emotionally disturbed. Well, I owe my life to Eddie Brown. We owe our lives in many instances to the heroic firefighters of the FDNY. And that's why we pay tribute to them on this uh, horrible night when earlier in the day, remember his name, never forget, Timothy Klein, 31-year-old retired, excuse me, a 31-year-old son of a retired firefighter who also has other family members who've been in the fire department over the years attached to Ladder Company 170, Kanasi, right on Rockaway Parkway, a place that I was frequently at when I was a kid. We used to play around there. It was like a, a block away from the 69th Precinct on Forster Avenue and Rockaway Parkway. <sighs> So uh, when eventually there's a wake or the funeral uh, procession takes place, if it's open to the general public, please put aside some time, show up, show the fire department that has had a horrible loss, the solidarity that we all are in, in supporting our fire department. And think there have been three, three firefighters. 2019, remember his name, also from Ladder Company 170. In Canarsie, Stephen Pollard, who was killed at the scene of a car crash on the Bell Parkway when he fell through a gap in the roadway. And let's not forget, on February 16th, Jesse Gerhard, who a day after he had fought a fire with his colleagues, I believe it was Beach Channel Drive, out near Beach 25th Street, collapsed on the floor of Ladder Company 134 in Central Avenue in Far Rockaway, and then was sped by the EMTs to St. John's Episcopal Hospital uh, instead of Peninsula Bowl Hospital that should have been open that was closed a long time ago. I know I got many, many times I got stitched up in Peninsula Hospital, but you got to go to St. John's, and I believe he perished on his way. That's our tribute to the Fire Department of New York, and it's our tribute to this hero, fallen firefighter. Timothy Klein. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com. And use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How many firefighters risk their life going into abandoned buildings where homeless or drug addicts were living, where fires had been set off either by those cooking up their uh, heroin for injection or in trying to keep warm. And likewise, uh, homeless people who themselves perished in those kind of fires. But I guess in my lifetime, the two most dramatic fires that I ever witnessed was, uh, I think it was 1978, up the road from Lundy's in Sheepshead Bay, where you had the wall bombs fire. The firefighters were on the roof. The roof collapsed. And I think uh, six died and so many more were injured. That was 1978. It was a year before I started the Guardian Angels. And I know uh, every year they have a ceremony there honoring those who perished and the families, the remaining families show up. We've always tried to be there. 
And then recently, uh, oh, I think it was like day after January 1st, a few years ago, you know, the Markel paper plan on I-80 right before you hit Patterson. Uh, I think a crane had gone over some kind of an extension cord, and I mean, it was a raging fire, raging fire for days. And when they were putting the water on the fire, it was freezing up from the hose. It was that cold. Well, we probably all have those memories, all have those memories of fires. And in each and every one of those cases, whether people were in those buildings or they were out of those buildings, the firefighters put everything at risk for all of us. And with the loss of this firefighter tonight, as his colleagues are lined up outside of uh, Brookdale Hospital, if you happen to be in the vicinity there, where East Flatbush meets Canarsie, meets Brownsville, right off of Linden Boulevard, stop by. Please pay your respects. Because uh, we lost a hero. And it should be a hero that we don't quickly forget. Again, just to recap the story of the day, bar none. Responding to a fire earlier in the day on Avenue N from Ladder Company 170 in Canarsie, Rockaway Parkway in Farragut. Firefighter Timothy Klein, 31, son of a firefighter who was consumed by the fire and the smoke, may have suffered cardiac arrest, and then was found by his uh, colleagues, taken out on a stretcher. He had turned blue, and they were desperately trying to resuscitate him. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Sumter, South Carolina where the Civil War began, and no doubt Dale there was on the side of, uh, well, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and Jeff Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Correct, Dale? Yeah, that's about the size of it. (laughs) Uh, When you talked about the fires in the beginning, you know, when I first heard you on the radio, it, it, it didn't dawn on me, you know, about fires. And then all of a sudden... I remember for about 40 years, I worked in a textile plant. And let me tell you, that ain't no picnic. If you got a fire in that plant, you immediately go to it. All that cloth and those burners they have to dry to cure it and all. I got caught one time on an oven cure. And I can't remember if I was attending a fire or what, but all of a sudden the smoke came out so quick that I was lost. I couldn't see. I didn't have nothing on but my helmet. No no breathing apparatus or nothing. And suddenly a fella come from behind me and says, come on, Dale, we'll get you over to the side here. And he, he got me down. But yeah, but it's so, it's so uh, as, you, as you personally experienced, Dale, at that textile oh, mill, we certainly have yes, a fair sir. share up here, up in Massachusetts, textile mills, tanneries, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Right. Patterson was Silk City, where you had uh, all the silk mills, uh, and they had some huge raising blazes. Oh, man. Listen, you have to experience it, fella. Uh, The the fires I've seen, see, in a textile mill, um, you have what they call, oh, it's when the cloth comes out of a uh, squeezer that takes all the um, chemicals and stuff out of it, you know, squeezes it out. Then it goes through what they call a pre-dryer. 
and that's about seven or eight burners in there, and they're long burners, about uh, eight feet long. And there's, I don't know, there's just a bunch of them there, and it goes up and down, up and down, up and down through it. And one little snag or one little cloth that catches that thing, forget it. It goes up like a Roman candle just that quick. And also, Dale, there's so many buildings that are not up to code. They have hollowed walls. They have, well, all kinds of materials that have been put in there that don't match up to code in the walls that supposedly uh, were insulation, and they actually feed the fire. And then all kinds of illegal connections, electrical connections, overloaded uh, connections that lead to fires, fake walls, the whole nine yards. Got to understand when the firefighters go in there, they have no idea, especially when the smoke is just consuming. I remember uh, as a kid, 16 years old, and it was 19, just about 1970. I was delivering the daily news in the morning. 168 dailies. I had to go uh, to the Harder family little house they had. Nobody lived in there. That's where they delivered the newspapers. And I was bundling my uh, papers at about 4.30 in the morning, uh, rubber banding them to take them uh, on the route. And there was a fire down the block in one of those old wood buildings. It was in the middle of winter. Boy, that that wooden house went up quick, three stories. Uh, I was able to get into the building rescue five of the people, but a sixth person who was emotionally disturbed on the first floor, a senior citizen, had actually lit their mattress purposefully on fire. And I saw that person. I tried to get that person out. The smoke, you have to understand, it's not the flames. You can deal with the flames. It's the smoke. And you got to crawl on your belly. You can't stand. You don't have uh, oxygen on like professional firefighters would have, and even then it's difficult. you got to crawl on your belly, and I remember looking at this uh, older woman who had lit her mattress on fire, and at that point that I got to her, she was like a candle that had melted. And then I knew I had to get out of there because I was fading, fading fast. So I had that kind of experience, although I'm not going to compare it. It's not comparable to volunteer firefighters and professional firefighters who never get their due. But the worst part of the fire is the black smoke. It just knocks you out. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Karen in Rockland County. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Karen. Finally got to talk to you. I was on the phone for three hours yesterday and never got through. Oh, yeah, uh, and a lot of calls coming in. We had a lot of subjects, uh, matters that we were discussing. Yeah, I know. You're very popular. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> uh, I taught in Patterson for uh, 40 years, and, you know, the kids never took the fire drills, you know, too seriously. They would always be kidding around and all that. But we had a bad fire in school nine. Oh, probably like, you know, 35 years ago. And not one, I mean, all, everybody got out of that building safely, and it lasted for days, that fire. The teachers got out, the kids got out. So, I, you know, I always bring that up to the kids during fire drills. I says, if it had been our school, nobody would have made it out alive. <laughs> now, Karen, <laughs> uh, it got to the point when... Uh... I was going to PS114 in Canarsie and then Bildersee Junior High School. Uh, every month we'd have a fire drill. And the principal, assistant principals, and deans got hip. 
And they said, we'll hold the fire drill at 2.30 in the afternoon because guys like Curtis and other students, they're going to go out, and then they're going to do the bird. They're not coming back to class. I mean, while everyone was paying attention to the instructor of the instructions given by their teacher, because you all had a particular place that you had to line up, I was out of sight, out of mind. I was already home by the time they got back into the classroom. So they realized if you do the fire drill early or right after lunch, guys like Curtis and others, they're not coming back. So do it as close to 3 o'clock as possible so you still meet the qualifications that were necessary to, to prove that you had done the proper number of uh, fire drills. And it was very important. But you were just giving me and my cousins, my Supreme Cuisine cousins, Lenny Beans, Bianchino, Joey G, the Cheech from uh, Howard Beach, an opportunity to do the bird. And, boy, we were gone. Try to catch us. Now, Dean, go ahead. Put on your PF flyers. Put on your kids. Put on your Converse sneakers. See if you can catch us now. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, let's go to Bobby calling from Westchester. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Bobby. Put on your PF too. Uh, uh, get Bobby back up. Uh, Carmelito, uh, I'm always forgetting your name, a fellow Canarsiite. Camelia. See if we can get Bobby to actually talk into the phone. I don't know. Some of these folks... They think they can do a conference call with you on talk radio. You know, like they're talking from a cave, like uh, down, uh, well, up in Westchester. That would be the enormous pipeline that connects us here in New York City to the reservoirs, you know, way up in Valhalla. Let's try Bobby again. Uh, Bobby, you there? Yeah. What about the fires in Long Island last year? Those I went on for days and everything. That's not Bobby. That's Steve from Manhattan. See, that's why he was talking from a distance. He was trying to do camouflage to his phone. I, I don't understand this guy. This guy has been making calls. Since Bob Grant, the king of talk radio, my mentor, gave me an opportunity to do talk radio. We're talking 1991. And instead of just calling him Steve from Manhattan and then doing his spiel because he's certainly experienced, he certainly is well-spoken. And then if he wants to put his tagline on, you know, go Buchanan, go Buchanan, go Buchanan, you can do that. You think the guy will ever grow up? He's got to be in his 60s and 70s, right? You think he'll ever grow up? Prank calling at the age of 70, right? When does it end? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Mark in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Mark. Hey, hey, Curtis, how you doing? Uh, Mark, my don't mind. See, I should preemptively give the rules and regulations because other talk show hosts and hostesses, uh, they slack up. There are Robert rules of order that apply to the talk radio caller. Never ask me how I'm doing because... I'll tell you, I've had better days. Kabish, Kabish, Mark, Kabish. Yeah, yeah, okay. Curtis. Right. Hey, uh, do you do you remember what? Uh, did they ever find that guy? Uh, you know that guy that ran over the the Gotti. Uh, you know the son you know, on the bicycle, and he, uh, you know, he died in that, and they they never found the guy that uh, you know that ran over uh, ran over the uh, on the bicycle that that the, the Gotti's. Uh, 
you know, do do something to him or something. What, you do, know? You, what do you think, Mark? You, you think that John Gotti Sr. was a compassionate humanitarian uh, rather than the jadrul, cold-blooded, psychotic killer that he was? Oh, well, what do you think, Mark? What do you think? Uh, yeah, uh, well, I, no, I, I was just curious. I, I didn't know. Uh, All right, well, let me give yeah. you the eye, eye bird view from a relative okay. of mine who they never knew was related to me because <laughs> I don't have an Italian last name. Shliva, oh. it's Polish. So their tenant was my relative. And he gave me some of the details, although he's cursed, please. It's okay. I'm not going to tell anybody. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Uh, so apparently it wasn't so much young guy senior that was so upset that he wanted to kill this guy, a neighbor who was backing up his car out of his driveway, and the younger Gotti, I believe was on a motorbike, which was very fashionable back then, especially in Italian neighborhoods, Irish neighborhoods, not the Jewish neighborhoods. They were too busy uh, reading Torah and Talmud and uh, studying. But definitely in the uh, Irish neighborhoods, the Italian neighborhoods, everybody had a little mini bike. And apparently uh, he didn't see the young Gotti behind him. He ended up hitting him. And unfortunately, uh, the young Gotti uh, boy perished. It may well have been Victoria Sr., the mother, who um, obviously was so crestfallen, uh, who demanded that something be done. And apparently people told the guy, you better move. Put everything you got into that Buick you got and get the hell out of here as far away as possible because once Gotti Sr., finally crosses the edge. You're dead. And apparently this guy was an upholsterer because my cousin Lenny was an upholsterer in Long Island. I think that was his shop. And he went back and he went to the job in a few days. It was nothing. And then one day he gets out. It's about 5.30. A van rolls up. Everybody's getting out of work. The van door opens up and some gavones, some goons, Take him, throw him in the back of the van, and drive him away. And naturally, everybody there in the parking lot took the coat of Omerta. Snitches get stitches and end up in ditches. And word is he was either buried in some foundation that was being dug for a housing development, or he was chemically incinerated. But yes, Mark, he was killed. Hey, uh, I substitute teach down in Patterson at uh, at JFK High School. I wanted to oh, tell you that. I've been to JFK. I've been to East Patterson High School. I've been to JFK. JFK is a bigger uh, school. Uh, you deserve yeah, I mean, I, you you deserve the Medal of Honor. Uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. I I, I sub at uh, Eastside High School too. Yeah, let me tell yeah. you something. Eastside is a much smaller school. It's older. JFK yep. is the bigger high school. I visited JFK one time, and I felt I needed a division of Marines to escort me in and out. That place wow. is crazy. Yeah, wow. I, I like to really, I like to meet you someday. Really, you know, like love to meet you. You know, I, I, every time you come on the radio, I listen to you. Wait a second, Mike. Mike, you sound like the kind of character they use to lure you. Now, you want to meet me in the, that huge parking lot where the park and the cemetery is behind JFK High School? You know what I'm talking about, Mark? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been there. What a place to whack me. So here it is. The Nebuchadnezzar Shlubby Mark, nebulous as he is. Come on, come meet me in the parking lot. And the next thing I know, no Mark, but I'm looking oh, at a no. nine a nine millimeter in my brain from the Trinitarios, the Dominican gang yeah. that now runs most of Patterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. What do you think? I'm stupid. Yeah, he does. You see, he's the kind of guy they use, the Mark. Nobody would suspect Mark of being the lure, the Venus flytrap. Hey, Mark, seems harmless, right? You'd see Mark would be driving away in his Toyota, right? Have a good day, Curtis. Clip, bang, bang. Let's go to Sammy and Howard Beach. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Sam. Yes, uh, Curtis, let's not forget Three months before 9-11, Father's Day, the fire that killed three firefighters in Long Island City. Mm. Sammy, did you uh, know any of them personally? Uh, Harry Ford. I could tell. I could tell. You still, you haven't gotten over that loss. Uh, could, and, could, could you tell us what kind of a man he was? Because obviously... I had forgotten, and I know probably a lot of our listeners don't even remember, but can you remind us on this day of tragedy where we've lost another firefighter on Avenue N as he perished at uh, Brookdale Hospital, Timothy Klein, don't forget him. What about your friend, Sammy? He wasn't a friend. He was an acquaintance, but family man, St. Francis Prep grad, he was just, the salt of the earth, what you expect of all our civil servants, he he really exemplified that. And now hearing this and living so close to there, it just breaks my heart for the disrespect our civil servants get from people today. Yeah. And uh, Sammy, how old are you? 68. Okay. I'm your age. You remember when the firefighters would respond to fires in Brownsville and they would arrive at the scene and people would be in the tenements shooting at them, throwing garbage and ash cans at them and everything, and they needed the police to come before they could even fight the fire? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of they, 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 and people nowadays say, when I tell them that, you know, the new hipsters and millennials, oh, shocking, shocking. No. That tenement that you're moving into now, Brownsville, uh, near uh, Sackman in Newport, can I tell you a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. It's no longer there. It burned to the ground, but the firefighters would respond. And when they responded, there'd be a trap. They'd, they'd pull out the hoses. They'd be ready to run in, and then all of a sudden, shots would be fired at them. Right. Right. So all I could tell you is I think it's another sad day for our New York City firefighters community. And, uh, you know, may they all rest in peace, and God always bless their souls, all of them. Yes, and thank you, uh, Sammy, for reminding us and uh, keeping his memory alive, your acquaintance. Okay, thank you, Curtis. Have a good night. So important. Radio is the most intimate form of communication. You could see the pain in Sammy. That's, that's about 21, 22 years ago. He, he'll never forget. He'll never forget that loss. And naturally, 
uh, pales in comparison to what happened on 9-11, where we lost dozens and dozens of first responders, mostly firefighters. And remember the wakes, the funerals. I remember uh, our colleague here, Michael Mbaricich, Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, took the time out to go to as many of those wakes, as many of those funeral marches and masses and um, religious ceremonies as possible. It seemed like sometimes he'd be going a three, four day representing the city of New York. And I know many of our listeners went, even though they may not have been related, related to the person in question. And those are things that we will never forget. Later on in the show, I'm going to hammer Dominic uh, Carter, who is now the um, barrier between me and Frank Morano. You know, Frank insisted that he not have to talk to me because he know he knows I would be his inquisitor. I always was. Now he gets to just start by hitting softballs out of City Field that Dominic serves him up. Well, Dominic is the best gumshoe reporter here at WABC. We've had some great ones here, and they're still here, Lydia Serrani, Rita Cosby. They've been great reporters. But Dominic, uh, citywide, is the best. He knows where everyone's bones are buried. I'm going to give him homework tonight about Thrive. Thrive that has been rebranded, given a totally different name by Mayor Eric Adams' office. They call it the Community Mental Health group that's housed now in City Hall, whose budget is $250 million. Supposedly, they run 20 programs to help with those who uh, have mental issues, and they do nothing. And the mayor will be releasing his budget for 2023 in Brooklyn, I believe it's on Tuesday, in the old majestic uh, theater on Flatbush Avenue that was completely refurbished. It is magnificent. It's right near uh, Erasmus High School. It is absolutely magnificent. But will any of those reporters say, wait a second, Eric Adams, you have continued to program Thrive, and all you did with Comrade de Blasio is change the name to the Community Mental Health Agency? with a budget of $250 million that didn't do anything in six years of de Blasio and Charlene McRae, one and a half billion dollars spent not helping any of those who were emotionally disturbed persons, not one. It can't point to one. And I'm going to suggest to Dominic Carter, as he puts pressure, on the Attorney General of the state of New York, Tish James, who only wants to... uh, Sue, Donald Trump, you know, she has Tourette's syndrome. You mentioned uh, Trump, Sue, Trump, Trump's kids, Sue, Trump's businesses, Sue. How about an investigation into the one and a half billion dollars that I say was absconded, taken by de Blasio and his wife, Charlene McRae? It could be in the Cayman Islands in Panama and Switzerland. No Democrat will go there. Well, it's time now that... Eric Adams himself apparently is continuing on the program, but having completely changed the name to the Community Mental Health Agency. You might have changed the uh, the wolf's clothes, but it's the same old non-functioning Thrive. 
and I'm going to put the pressure on Dominic Carter now that he's the barrier between me and Frank Morano at 12 midnight to use all of his investigative skills that are massive and finally find out where did one and a half billion dollars go and I want to know whose account, Bill de Blasio or Charlene McRae. Yeah, two thugs. Two thugs in Long Beach, right? Cripping, cripping down the block as uh, the hydraulics were kicking it in their Chevy Impala. So they took old West Coast gangbanging tactics to the East Coast. And the new crime stats are in. With the top of the month upon us, and things have even gotten worse. I mean, who would have ever thought, in their wildest dreams, certainly not I, who lost uh, Eric Adams fair and square, that there would be more crime with Eric Adams as our mayor, more street crime at all different levels, than there ever was in the eight years of the feckless, weak, hopelessly inept man who took a Miley Cyrus wrecking ball to the city that we love, comrade Bill de Blasio, who was a part-time mayor, the dope from Park Slope. And yet, the analytics are in. Subway assaults have jumped another 50% to the highest total in a year. Now, this is after the flood of all those supposed police. They must be placebos because I don't see them in the subway system. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen. We are keeping every cat. Oh, I'm flooding the subway system, especially after. What was his name again? Hmm. Frank James. Wow. We don't even hear about him anymore. The guy was a domestic terrorist. Came into his our city a diabolical plot to kill as many people as possible. Shot ten, could have shot more if his nine millimeter didn't jam up. Went on a thirty hour tour in New York City like he was a tourist, you know, on one of those tourist buses, wearing his village people outfit, you know, the yellow construction hat, the orange vest. He was stopping at every landmark. Hey, you know, while the old points bulletin was the story of the day. We didn't even know that there was a war in the Ukraine. It was all Frank James all the time. And the subways, the surveillance cameras we found out didn't work and haven't worked since 2018. Two-thirds of them. You would have thought there would have been outrage there. We pay all this money, and yet Jose, an illegal alien from the Dominican Republic, has working surveillance cameras in his bodega. But we, the most sophisticated mass transit system, the MTA money-taking agency run by Hokum in Albany, can't even find a surveillance camera that works. And so what was Eric Adams saying, which was maybe one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And I would give the mayor a drug test. I know he doesn't use drugs. I've known Eric Adams for 40 years. He's not a drinker. He's not a drugger. But when he said that he wants to put metal detectors in the subways, I said, give this guy a whiz test right now. He must be in a drug-induced psychosis. We can't even stop people from fair jumping. There are the surveillance cameras. Two-thirds of them don't work. And you want to put in metal detectors? Who's going to monitor the metal detector? And he said it. And he doubled down on it. Just like with this wave of crime crippling our city. Our city is never going to recover until we deal with this crime. Street crime. Crime in the uh, 
parks and mostly crime in the subways. With the legalization of the recreational use of marijuana, there was Eric Adams, who was with Stephen Colbert. You remember after he had been elected mayor of the city of New York, joking about how he brought the bamboo, the nickel and dime bag. He was laughing like a giddy kid in junior high school was smoking his first <laughs> joint, going puff, puff, pass with Stephen Colbert. And remember Stephen Colbert, I don't go that way. I don't do that. We know he does. He hits the bong in his house there in New Jersey. Ain't no doubt about it. But so the mayor was having fun with that. Okay, so I gave him slack. But then he proposed, since at the end of the month they will be licensing business establishments to sell legal marijuana like they are now in Jersey, that he wanted to have hydroponic grows on the rooftops of the 800 NYCHA projects. He wanted to be growing marijuana on the rooftops of the public housing projects in New York City. Is he insane in the brain? You don't think some of the young residents are going to be sampling that product? How much razor wire are you going to have to put on the roof? How many pit bull terriers are you going to need? How many security officers with fully loaded AK-47s to protect that crop? And by the way, schmuck pots... It's a federal agency, NYCHA. Most of the monies to support the projects come from the federal government, where they still consider marijuana to be a level one drug equal in danger to heroin. I don't know where this guy whips up this stuff. Can't he just focus on the stats? Let's go to the analytics. You know what they say in baseball and basketball and football now. Follow the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Look at this. Oh, my God. Felonies in the subways are up 105% in just one month. This is with a flood of cops in the system that I never see, to be honest with you. All kinds of fair beating. They finally determined, yes, it's like the Irish sweepstakes. People go over the turnstile, under the turnstile, through the gate. (laughs) Nobody does anything. Oh, my God, this is embarrassing. You know when he said that New York City is a laughing stock? Remember, it was uh, like four Sundays ago. He was at the uh, annual communion breakfast of the NYPD. Oh, I remember those communion breakfasts when I was kids. Boring. But they had to sit there, and they, they went and mass first, and they had their communion. Then they had their breakfast, you know, breakfast. And you can tell. Uh, could I have another serving? Yeah, yeah. Could I have more Rice Krispies? Can I have more Cheerios? Can I have pancakes? Can I have waffles? Hey, you're pigging out, right? But the mayor, remember, he said we're a laughing stock to the country. Well, we are. You send in, you claim the largest force of police officers in uniform ever in the history of the department, and crime keeps going up in the subways. It's at an all-time high. Every category is up. And actually, the mayor says, I've got a plan. And you'll see by January 1st of 2023. Now he's talking 2023. <laughs> we got to get through this hot summer. Hot fun in the summertime. No, lots of crime. A sly in the family stone in the summertime. But let's let's put that off for a second. Let's talk about a more serious issue to some of you. You would think crime is the number one issue. It is. That's why we continue to have these empty office buildings, 60% of them unoccupied, because uh, workers insist 
on doing work at home. They're not coming to work. And the big CEOs, yo, we'll come to work or you'll lose your job. Well, guess what? It's a worker's market. They don't have enough skilled workers to do the work that they're doing virtually from their home. And let's not kid ourselves. When they're at home, they got two computers set up. They're working two jobs instead of one. Because who's supervising them? Nobody cares as long as they get the work done. They could go jogging. They could go for their big El Grande Latte at their local Starbucks. They could spend time with their kids. And the men can no longer lie. To their wives said, oh, I got to work late. Uh, yeah, no, you don't. You're not going with your gumata tonight. You're doing your work here in the house, your virtual work. So family life is better. Not for all of you. Because you can't wait to get out of your house. It's driving you nuts. But you're there with your children. And I know how difficult that is for some people to be with their kids. <laughs> kids were dyeing their hair 52 different colors. Who was saying, Dad. Today I identify as a woman, then a week later I'm a transgender, then a week later, hey dad, you know what I think I am? I'm, uh, I'm asexual, I have no gender identification. They call it gender apathetic. Yeah, I'm one of the 72 characters uh, that, that are assigned to gender identification, dad. And, and dad whispers to himself, how freaking pathetic. Oh, yeah, yeah, life is much better. They're not coming back to work. They're not coming. And it's no longer because of COVID-19, no longer because of mass mandates. It's because of crime. But our mayor just does not seem to get hip to this. But he's a well-dressed man. Come on. Every day. It ain't no suits off the rack. We're not talking men's wholesale outlet. You know, we're not <laughs> we're talking custom-made suits. And the Ferragamo shoes. We, I think we could all agree. He's a well-dressed man. Where he gets the money, I have no idea. But hey. And today, he was Pee Wee Herman again on a city bike. He had the helmet on. He was riding around the city. He's spending. Now get this, ladies and gentlemen. He's spending millions and millions of your hard-earned tax dollars to put in more bicycle lanes, more Pee Wee Herman lanes, close to a billion dollars over five years, there will be a bicycle lane coming to your neighborhood. I mean, think of all the bicycle lanes out there. And, and, and some of you are driving around as we speak, right? You're driving into to Manhattan over the Brooklyn Bridge. They've designated one of the car lanes for bicycles. And you're crawling over the bridge. In fact, you get a good view of the East River for about a half hour before you get to the other side. And they're still monkeying around with it. Can I use monkeying around? Yeah, yeah, okay, that's okay. I, I, I'm not using any kind of a racial comment. I'm talking about monkeying around with the Ed Koch Bridge. No, make that the Queensboro Bridge. No, make that the 59th Street Bridge. The bridge has three freaking names. Look at all that signage, all the waste of money. But anyway... They're building a bicycle lane, and the engineers are clashing. No, give them four lanes. No, take away another lane from vans and cars. Give them five lanes. We want to screw people with cars and vans and trucks who do deliveries, who need their set of four wheels to survive. And then in the background, my little pretty, Governor Hochul, the supermajority in the state senate, the supermajority in the assembly, and Eric Adams saying, we want a congestion tax 
We want to taxi the moment you breathe air in, in the island of Manhattan. No wonder why so many people are continuing the exodus. Out of New York City to Florida, that's the number one point of destination. Number two is North Carolina. Number three is South Carolina. Number four is Georgia. Number five is Tennessee. Number six is Virginia. Number seven is Texas. And parts unknown is number eight. Anything to get the hell out of here. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to John in Reno, Nevada, the armpit of Nevada. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, John. Curtis, in 1979 was the first time I went to New York City. Uh, We was at JV Pizza on 18th Avenue in Brooklyn. We finished our meal as a family, and we come out the door, and a homeless guy attacks a tourist in front of us, starts swinging, and the tourist fought back. They had a horrible fight. Um, You know, that was a rare occurrence back then, but this has become the standard quo now. Uh, just the other day, Adam said he's going to spend $171 million on the homeless. The thing is, it won't make a dent in the situation because as soon as you place a homeless in housing, another homeless takes his place. Um, Wait a second. Who's agreeing with you in the background there, John? That I don't know. What do you mean? Are you at the casino? Are you at those dive casinos in Reno that I've been at? Those penny slots? Admit it, John. No, no. I'm at home. It's one of my roommates. Oh, okay. Now, now, are you sure it's your roommate at home or your roommate in the Nevada Correctional Facility in Reno that I I visited a person there one time? You know, my ex-girlfriend just got popped for possession of a stolen car. But she's the only person I know that's locked up right now. John, why did I feel that right in the marrow of my bone? Why did I know that about you, John? Hmm? I've been saying novenas for her, you know, to get her life straightened out. Oh, Monday night, light the candles at the novena. But you got to do more. Stations of the Cross. You got to say the rosaries. In fact, let me give you as if I was giving you penance. As a priest hearing your confession on behalf of your girlfriend, who what stole what kind of a car? I do not know. It was not listed. Oh, I see. You're taking the fifth. You have no idea. But this is what you have to do. A hundred Hail Marys and 20 Our Fathers. And then on Wednesday, you have to do the Stations of the Cross in your nearby church with broken glass on the ground as you get down on your knees and pray. That's Our Lady of Immaculate Conception. Excellent. Oh, now, wait, let me ask you this question, John. Where were you originally from? Woodbridge, Virginia, just south of Washington, D.C. Okay, so you had options. You had Reno, the armpit in Nevada. You had Lake Tahoe right over the mountains. I'm sure you've traveled over those mountains where you got to put chains on and there's ice and there's snow, even though it's 110 degrees in Reno at that time. You could have gone to Lake Tahoe. You could have gone to Vegas. Why did you settle in Reno? Um, I like the river. <sighs> this is the dangers of legalized marijuana. It is now approximately about 7 o'clock in Reno. And I would bet you he's hit the bong a few times. He's played the penny stocks. He sounded, and I mean, the uh, penny. Uh, <laughs> the penny slots. <laughs> Boy, I could figure all that out just from his voice. This is, this is dangerous. 
the way I can see into a person's soul and I can see immediately the criminality. A guy's like Bonnie and Clyde, blaming it all on Bonnie, even though he's Clyde. No, not Clyde Tolson, the gay lover of J. Edgar Hoover, number two in the FBI. Why am I going in those directions? Why am I digressing? Oh, it's because Frank Morano is coming up at one, the other side of midnight, with his buffer, Dominic Carter, who does the hour 12 to 1 before that so that Frank Morano doesn't have to answer my inquisition. And then, of course, there is the most listened to, the most called into hour of the many I do here at WABC, the Animal Welfare Hour, with my uh, lovely wife, Nancy, who is the animal rescuer par excellence, who's going to tell us why all these animal rights expert, uh, activists are running out onto the hardwood floor of the Minnesota Timberwolves, partially owned by Aroid, and nailing themselves to the hardwood like as if they were Jesus Christ on the cross. Have you seen that? Impaling themselves for the animals. Now they're looking over at Aroid, that old disgraziata. Yeah, without J-Lo, huh? What is it like now, huh? In Minnesota, where everybody is blonde hair and blue eyes. He likes them that way. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to uh, Juan, who's calling from New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Juan. Hey, Crudis. Uh, first of all, I did the Brooklyn Bridge last week, and it took me no more than eight minutes to get over it. So you're really wrong by us saying that it takes a half hour to get over. No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Were you on your Pee Wee Herman uh, Big Chief Schwinn bicycle, or were you in a car? I was on a bike. Well, that on a, take the wax out of your ears. I said it takes you a half hour to get over the Brooklyn Bridge to Manhattan because you bicyclists have taken a lane that used to be used by those driving cars, vans, and trucks. Yeah, but it's good. It's a good thing to, to put more bike lanes because more people are using the bikes so you don't have the stupid traffic that you had even 10 years ago. And you don't have the parking issues and people are starting to get the e-bikes and the scooters. And that's perfect. You don't have to pay for tickets and you don't have to park and pay the meters. There's no traffic and you they should build more and more bicycle lanes because more people are getting the bikes and more people are thinking straight and saying, let me just get a bike instead of having to wait in traffic for a half hour on the stupid Brooklyn Bridge. Juan, you will have accomplished your mission. There'll be nobody left in New York City. They will have all left to Florida and North Carolina. If people cannot... Everybody's going to ride bikes. Everybody's going to ride a bike. It's going to be like Amsterdam. It's going to be like the olden days. Well, think of it. Amsterdam, they have legal pot, legal hash at the coffee shops. People on bicycles. Uh, They have the canals there. Have you ever been to Amsterdam, Juan? No. You Never. must go. The Cannabis Bowl. No. That is the Super Bowl. What, what are you doing back there? Juan. Closing the door. Why? Uh, uh, it's late at night already. Oh, wait. I, what, I'm not what, waking up. What, what neighborhood um, do you live in, Juan, that you, you're closing the door at like 10 o'clock oh, at it's night? It's really bad out of here. It's really bad out of here. Well, tell me. What, what neighborhood, Juan? <laughs> It's in Brooklyn. I'm not going to be specific. Oh, come on. You can be specific. Because they're going to come down to my house here. Well, That's you, why I made sure to lock it. You really think they're coming for you? After talking to you, maybe. So you think through osmosis, 
like following Instagram. Like if you were styling and profiling a Rolex watch at a strip club, at a restaurant, at a bar, and they're tracking your Instagram posts, I can understand that, Juan. And then all of a sudden, you roll up to your residence, and they put a gun to your head, and there goes your Rolex. I get that. (laughs) Right? I get that. But why? How are they listening to this conversation now? Because they're the guys in the cars. They're not the ones in the bikes. They're not smart. So wait a second. The ones in four wheels, the vans, the trucks. Yeah. They're, they're your enemies. Fancy. They're your enemies. They're desperate for the Rolexes. Desperate. And they're trying to be fancy in the cars. Mm. They don't understand that you don't got to be fancy. You got to get down on the bike and work hard and do the exercise. Good. And you get around a lot faster. Good cardiovascular exercise. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you ever, when you when you crouch down and it's like the uh, Tour de France, you know, and you're trying to glide because the wind is behind you, do you ever get the feeling that the guy driving that car just wants to swerve over and turn you into a speed bump, Juan? No, he's not doing any exercise. You feel sick all the time. I only get sick sometimes from the biking, but you know what? You get immune to the seat. The seat first hurts the first few days that you're biking. And you get immune to it, and then you just bike every day, and you feel good. It gets easier and easier as you do it. Juan, what was your first bicycle? Think back to your wayward youth. What was your first bicycle? Uh, the last, the, the fir- I can't think of the first one, but one of the first ones was the company was specialized. Oh, okay. I had a Raleigh 10-speed English racer. And people were spitting at me saying, why didn't you get an American-owned bike? I could easily see you, Juan, because you're aggressive on a Cannondale, right? Bearing down on your fellow bicyclists. Out of my way! Out of my way! <laughs> Absolutely. Juan, I want you to have a very safe and secure rest of the evening. You may want to watch your back because, you know, all those people you see every day peering at you through the windows of their cars, vans, and trucks. You know, one more thing, actually. Oh, yes, go, go. I don't think that people should wear helmets because if you're scared that you're going to get hit by a car and that's why you're wearing a helmet, then you shouldn't be biking at all. So if you're going to bike, you got to be sure that you're safe biking without the helmet because if you think you're going to get hit, then you shouldn't bike at all. Now, let me ask you a question, Juan. Have you ever ridden a city bike? Yes. Why do they have sissy bars? Why do they have sissy bars? Why is it a bicycle that, like, a female would have rode when we were younger because she didn't have the dangling three-piece set? You know, so why would they have a man riding a sissy bike one? They think it's more diverse. There should be more than one more of those bikes on the on the streets. Yeah, no, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense because who knows could be Tuesday. Who do I identify as? But uh, I don't think Mayor uh, the, the mayor was riding that bike. You don't think Eric that Adams? was Eric Adams? Who was that? No, he was riding the, the city bike. Yeah. You thought that was his body double, his brother Bernard? No, it's not the easiest bike to ride. I think I think he I think he got a different bike and he, you know, dressed it up to make it look like it's a city bike. He got an expensive, better bike than the city bikes because mm-hmm. the city bikes aren't so good. Juan, I know personally what a city bike is like. I want you to go to YouTube. The summer of 2020, June 1st, June 2nd, I and the Guardian Angels were battling Black Lives Matter and Antifa in the streets outside of Macy's and then Soho. And you'll see the mob pick up a city bike. You know how heavy that is? And smash it 
into my head. No, it sure is heavy. That I know. It's heavy. You think? I agree with you. You think it's done systemic damage to my medulla and cerebellum? You think I'm showing some of those effects, Juan? I think in a in a good way. It got you more energized. I think so. Yes, very good. I only wish my doctors would tell me that. Juan, <laughs> hunker down. You never know. They could be coming to do. take you away. They're coming to take you away. Ha ha. They're coming to take you away. Ho ho. To the funny farm. Where all the Pee Wee Herman bicyclists go. Now Juan is a true believer. I kid you not. He wants to eliminate all of you driving cars. He wants to eliminate those of you in vans and trucks. He wants the roadway only for bicyclists. And they're not going to stop until they eat up every inch of the asphalt. Let's go to Joe calling from uh, New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Giuseppe. Hey, Curtis. So, yeah, it was our wonderful experience we had yesterday with me, uh, my wife and I. She, we live in New Jersey, uh, Nuttally, wonderful Nuttally, fairly close to Manhattan normally. Mm-hmm. And my wife insists on having her beauty parlor visit in Lower East Side of Manhattan, mm. for some reason, not enough for uh, not enough hair salons in New Jersey for her. But anyway, that's another story. So uh, I said, "Sure, honey, I'll take you to alleviate your stress. No parking, you know, no uh, GPS, no problem. I know the city fairly well. I couldn't get to this salon. The between the bike lanes, the boarded up." traffic cones with parades, the construction sites. I moved about an inch every time the light changed from green to red. I would move about four inches. I finally made it to Fifth Avenue. My wife's calling the salon. Hey, we're going to be about 10, 15 minutes late. The appointment was for one thirty. I left them plenty of time from Jersey. I left about an hour ahead of time. They said, okay, 15 minutes we can handle it. Now it's 15 minutes more. I'm about another... 100 yards down Fifth Avenue, nowhere near the place that we need to be. And uh, I said to my wife, I said, look, you see what's going on here? You see these bike lanes? You see this is why we're in one lane of traffic going down this street, and we're all backed up. You see the row of city bikes right there along the side of the street, hogging up the whole side of the street between the bus lanes and the city bikes and the city, the bike lanes and the construction I stopped going to the city a couple of years right before COVID started. With all the crime, we used to hang out regularly in the city. Bryant Park, the village, the coffee shops, blah, 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 on a nice weekend, walk around. I will not go near that place. The only reason is because I feared for her safety, so I took her. I don't want a screwdriver plunge into my neck as I walk down the street and uh, or my face slashed or god forbid you know my wife or something like that so i don't go and she admitted it yesterday she said i gotta admit it looks a little dingy over here we saw a couple of you know boarded up stores graffiti again and i grew up going over there in the 80s as a teen and it's looking it's starting to look like that again unfortunately and i feel bad because the place was tremendous 
And we were going there regularly and enjoying it. And I just, I won't go near it. I won't go near it anymore. Between the traffic and the, the crime, that's it. I'm done there. Giuseppe. So. And they haven't even imposed congestion pricing yet, in which you'll have to pay for it with a reverse mortgage. Uh, what uh, what area of Jersey do you reside in? Uh, Nutley. Oh, Nutley. Oh, come on. Italianos. So, yeah. Giuseppe. You and your wife, welcome to my world, our world, those of us who are stuck here. What you have described is the torture that we go through each and every day when we try to negotiate these streets. Joe, you have done it so magnificently because you're looking at it from the outside looking in. Imagine those of us who are stuck here. I said that. I said that to my wife. I said, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how these people do it. I'm screaming in the car. I got the windows open. I'm screaming because I'm aggravated. You know, I I brought a cigar with me. I thought, oh, I'll get a coffee. I'll relax. I'll listen to the Yankee game while she's in the salon. No problem. I had more stress. My blood pressure must have been over 200 by the time I got home. I immediately made an excuse. She goes, well, let's go. Let's go hang out at Bryant Park at least and try to make the best. I'm not going anywhere near anywhere. I'm getting the hell out of here. I'm going back to the tunnel and getting out of here. We come back. Everything's nice and loose and green again. And, uh, you know, it's just sad. It's just sad because we used to have a nice time hanging out in the city. And it's just turned into, I don't, I don't know what's going on. It's just like I was when I was a kid in the 80s going over there. How, you know? old, how old are you, Joe? 55. I want you to imagine... That you're Kurt Russell and escaped from New York, and we you were entrapped here, and you couldn't get I out. Yesterday. I yeah. did. Yesterday, I did do that. It's exactly what I did. <laughs> you see that movie, Kurt Russell, escaped from New York, right? Don't you feel that way, Joe? Snake Plissken. Snake Plissken, right? Yes, yes. I'm telling you, Joe, it's what's happening. The exodus is continuing. When I go through the neighborhoods, the for sale signs are everywhere. Saturday, I was in Forest Hills. A nice upper class, middle class neighborhood. Not really a lot of crime, but you saw what recently happened there. The handyman, right? The handyman. And then all of a sudden, people for sale signs everywhere. They're leaving in droves, Joe. They're, they're coming to Nutley. People in New York City are coming to Nutley. You're going to have to move soon out of Nutley, Joe, because they're not going to leave you alone. Hey, they're pumping up the prices nice over here. It's okay. Let them keep coming. They're paying anything they anything anybody asks them over here in these uh, these parts. Just to escape New York. Yep. Oh, yep. It must see, be. see, it giveth and it taketh. See, ladies and gentlemen, with these last two callers, you've had a little bit of the flavor of Curtis Sliwa. And you have been exposed to the Twilight Zone. Oh, classic rare earth. And I got to speak to Vinny Maduno that you can listen to on Saturday when the music begins 5 to 6, the protege of Bruce Morrow, cousin Bruce, cousins, from 6 to 10. I haven't heard any rare earth from cousin Brucey, nor from Tony Orlando without Dawn, although great musical shows right on up to 12 midnight. And then I really partially do music, too, from 12 midnight to 6, although it's quite eclectic. But the reason I'm playing Rare Earth today is in honor of Earth Day that just passed. Because in Staten Island, not far from where Frank Morano resides, was the world's largest open-air dump. Fresh kills. The stink would twirl the hairs in your schnoz. 
Although I'll never forget Phil Rizzuto while driving home to his wife. Even though the Yankee game was still on, he cut out before the seventh inning. Phil Rizzuto, I say, Phil, what's that stink on the New Jersey Turnpike? You know, when you're, you're hitting uh, Amboy, South Amboy, opposite the Arthur Kill, the Kill Van Cult. He'd say, well, you know, when I make the turn over into Hillside where I I have to be with Cora, she's made me rigatoni and uh, uh, sauce. It's swamp gas. I said, it ain't swamp gas. It's the garbage rotting and the methane gas. Well, thank God to uh, St. Rudy Giuliani. They ought to put a statue right there. It's a state park now to Rudy Giuliani. It should be a statue there with Guy Molinari next to him, the former borough president, because they closed the dump. And not far from the dump is now one of the largest warehouses, the Jeff Bezos. That's right. The second richest man in, uh, in the world, depending on whose figures you look at, has built that warehouse. I think it's uh, called the JFK-8. And it's the first warehouse where the Amazon workers voted to form a union. And what was interesting to me is it's not easy because obviously Jeff Bezos doesn't want a union. A lot of the workers are figuring out, see, if we get a union, maybe we'll lose our job. And if they send in professional union organizers from the AFL-CIO, they're usually not too successful because they can be spotted like uh, Abraham Lincoln on a $5 bill. So all of this was organic. It was from the workers themselves. Half of the workforce didn't even bother to vote either way. But those that wanted a union superseded those that didn't. And it turned out today... They had a huge rally because Jeff Bezos and Amazon is challenging the vote. I wonder if they're going to hire Rudy Giuliani to say, check the Dominion and the Smartmatic machines. <laughs> they stole the election. No, no, no. Rudy is not going to be working for Jeff Bezos, I can assure you that. But Jeff prides himself on being a liberal, right? With the Washington Post, it now is the Washington Amazon Post. You know, he gets additional signage. So now he is like... Anti-union to the max. He's like Henry Ford was at the Ford Motor Company. The only thing missing is, and we don't know this to be true because there are plenty of goons who live on Staten Island. You just pay them the right price. They come in busting heads. But it's interesting. These uh, union workers, the ones who want a union, joined specifically to organize a union. So basically they went under the radar screen and they're calling their union, you'll love this, the Fruit Stand Workers United. What the hell does that have to do with Amazon package sorters and loaders of Amazon products into the many trucks? And that probably will upset our owner-operator, John Katsimatidis, who is oftentimes railed uh, on his many times uh, hosting shows. But here he was with Christides, D'Agostino's, and then some guy shows up with a fruit stand outside of his establishment selling it for like half as much. Why are they why are they calling their union the Fruit Stand Workers United? They don't want to be part of the AFL CIO. They don't want to be part of the Teamsters. They don't want to be part of any traditional unions. They want to form a new world order of unions. In fact, the leader, you've probably seen him in the many TV appearances that he made. Uh African American guy obviously wearing the mask during the pandemic. But he's a tall guy. And today, all of those that want the union 
had big shirts on that said, eat the rich. Eat the rich. You know, rage against the machine. We need a rage against the machine here, Matt. This, you know, rage against the machine. They were like communists. It's like you would almost think to rage against the machine that no longer exists would come together and have a concert for the Amazon workers who want to unionize at that JFK warehouse facility. And now they're trying to do likewise in a second facility on Staten Island, the LDJ5 warehouse. And you would think this would be the perfect opportunity for Rage Against the Machine to reassemble, to bang the cymbals, to heavy metal their way into the minds of all the strikers. And you know who would have been bobbing in the front row earlier today? The Altacaca. Bernie, the Altacaca Sanders was there. He was saying, solidarity for others. And remember, he's the leader of this movement and his protege. Yes, she was there. AOC, all out crazy. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So ladies first, please, Matt. Let's hear what AOC had to say. To the uh, union workers, they claim that they're a union now, although Jeff Bezos is saying, no, my little pretties, we're challenging it in court. If you can go to space, you can give our workers a bathroom break. Ain't that right? Yeah. If you can go to space, you can make sure that you're treating people well and giving them solid health care benefits. Yeah. That they don't have a three-hour commute to and from work. Right. That they can That's afford right. the house that they can live in. That people don't have to be sleeping in their cars in order to work for Amazon. All of this is an indignity and an injustice and it has no place in New York City. And we're going to change that. And right here, our workers out here are going to change that. So New York, it's time to step up for our workers. Because we're going to make sure that they go all the way. And if they want $100 million tax breaks from the state, well, they got to do their end of the deal, too. All right? So we're out here to support them. We're out here to make sure that we've got our workers back. Because, again, New York City is a union town. And we're not going to stop until the United States of America is union-made. So thank you all so much. Well, the princess of mean, AOC, was there to fire up the workers. Workers of the world unite. Oh, wait a second. That's what the communists say. She didn't say that, but you know who said that. Her hero, her mentor, the man that uh, my wife actually admires, Burn. She's a, a Bernie burner or whatever they call that stuff. That's right, Nancy loves Bernie, the Altacaca Sanders, and he was there to fire up the crowd to strike, strike, strike. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. You have taken on one of the most powerful corporations in America. They spent millions of dollars trying to defeat you. You are taking on one of the wealthiest guys in America, worth $170 billion, and you beat them. So I say to Jeff Bezos, who owns a $500 million yacht, I say, Jeff, when you're out on your yacht, I want you to think about the workers in Staten Island and your employees all over this country. They don't want a $500 million yacht. They don't want a $23 million mansion that you have in Washington, D.C. What do they want? They want 
housing in a given year. Amazon, that makes billions in profits, did not pay a nickel in federal taxes. So we need a progressive tax system that says to large corporations and wealthy individuals, you know what, you're going to start paying your fair share of taxes. And then he started screaming, eat the rich, eat the rich, eat the rich. By the way, if I were there, should have had Dominic Carter there busting his uh, Esquire shoes. Dominic should have asked Bernie, AOC, why is this union called the Fruit Stand Workers United when they don't sell fruit? Well, what does that play on words mean? And you know the union members, they're thugs, not Jeff Bezos' thugs, would have said, Dominic, why don't you get the hell out of here? Wow, the going's good. But if you notice, Bernie the Altacaca Sanders said, they don't want a $500 million yacht. Oh, yes, they do if they could. Could you imagine his Jeff Bezos? Who is his new girlfriend there, you know, that he stole from uh, that other guy out there in Seattle? I forget his her name. Anyway, they're on their yacht. They're coming through the Straits of the Verrazano. They're sailing under the Verrazano Bridge. They see the skyline of New York. And then they say, let's go through the Arthur Hill and the Kill Van Coe, where the hull of the yacht almost incinerates from all the chemicals there that separate the south shore of Staten Island from Perth Amboy. You could, you could tee off a golf ball from Tottenville right into Perth Amboy. You imagine him sailing through there. Now, do you think if the Amazon workers were on the Staten Island side, they might board it like pirates and just take over the $500 million yacht? Do you think they'd want his mansion in Washington and Seattle all around the world? Of course they would. It would be like Les Mis. To the barricades! To the barricades! And, you know, I'm loving watching all this because Jeff Bezos always said he was so liberal, he was so progressive and so critical of others. And then there's a guy that I grew up with right near the Bayview Projects. That's where he grew up, off the Bell Parkway. Exit 13, Rockaway Parkway. Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks, who rips you off by charging you $5 for a stale, a cup of stale coffee. And Howard Schultz has come back a third time now. He was in retirement. Then went back into refinement. In return, every time the baristas threaten to unionize, he comes back. And he says, you don't want to unionize. I'll give you whatever you want. But unions are the enemy of our company because you're our partners. Now, do you really think any of the baristas with their tip jar there think that they're partners with Howard Schultz, who's making gazillions of dollars for a third time? But Howard tells the story. I was born impoverished. I grew up in the Bayview Housing Projects. It was my mother and my dad. I'm not going to talk about my dad. Because, as my mother said, if you don't have anything nice to say about anybody, just don't say it. I remember seeing Howard Schultz roaming about Flatlands Avenue, looking for the next card game with the Lucchese crime family in their social club. Yeah, that was you, Howard. You were a degenerate card player, although a great athlete at Canarsie High School, and then went to some college somewhere, I think, in Michigan. You know, one of these, like, Easton and the Delta Polytech College of Technology, and he was the star quarterback, yes. And then his true calling, he went to Seattle. 
He saw that movie, Sleeping with the Fishes. No, not what the Lucchese's told him if he didn't pay the VIG. I wasn't that Sleeping with the Fishes. Remember, I forget. Who was that, Tom Hanks? I don't know. I'm all confused. And you know the rest of that story. So it's so good for me to see Mr. Progressive, Mr. Liberal, who was at a gathering in Queens outside at Queensboro Hall. I remember, Howard, and people in the crowd said, what was it like growing up with Curtis Sliwa in Canarsie, the guy with the red beret? He goes, I know that fascist. Good for you. A million times over, Mr. Liberal and Progressive, now that you consider union people your enemies. And then, of course, this Tim Cook. Is anyone more successful than Tim Cook of Apple? Unlike the previous owner and operator who definitely likes smoking the Puff Puff Pass. I mean, all the guys, you know, who started Apple in the garages there in Silicon Valley. Man, they were smoking ropes of dope. They were like potheads like you couldn't believe. And this guy was so loaded on pot that when he was diagnosed with cancer, he said, no, I don't want you to open me up. No surgery. I'll deal with it holistically and homeopathically. Guess what? It didn't work. But Tim Cook, now Tim Cook is being barraged by his Apple workers who are calling themselves, that's right, the FSWU, the Fruit Stand Workers United. They want $30 an hour for all workers. And they want Apple stock. They want Apple stock as union workers for Apple. And they say, we need increased tuition reimbursements, more vacation time, and higher match rates for our 401k so it can become an 801k. 30% of the workers have already signed their cards with a National Labor Relations Board, which would mean that there have to be votes at the various Apple locations to see if the workers are going to unionize. And what did Tim Cook do? He came out of his uh, ivy tower in Silicon Valley in uh, uh, Palo Alto. And he said, you know, you know, you serfs, you know, you worthless Apple workers, I'm going to double your paid sick days for full-timers and part-timers. And you know what they said? We'll see you before the National Labor Relations Board. It couldn't happen to three better liberal and progressives. Jeff Bezos of Amazon? Clearly, in this case, Tim Cook of Apple. And my favorite, the Canarsiite Howard Schultz, who came back three times to be the CEO simply to tell all the baristas, but we're partners, aren't we? And they said, let's see what you put in the tip jar, Howard. Let's go to the phones. Oh, boy. Bob and Yonkers. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Bob. Hey, Bobby. Bobby. Bobby Darren. Oh. You see, this is what happens, Matt, when I have the Frank Morano crew here. You use technology on me. I'm looking at the board filled with callers. And this is a placebo caller, Bob, from Yonkers. Too bad. Could have been good. Could have been real good. Anyway, let's go to uh, Bobby from Long Beach. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Bobby. Hello, Curtis. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Bobby! 
Listen, remember I called you a few weeks ago about somebody's birthday and I gave you the wrong date? Yeah. Again, you were part okay. of this, this technology here, this Sabatucci. No, no, Sabatucci. I found the real date. But I need to apologize to you for giving you the wrong date and not researching it more. And then I'm going to have to apologize to Frank because he don't want to give it out. All right, so now hold on. This is what we classically call in Italian, no matter what the dialect, whether you're Siciliano, a cheat, or a zip, Napolitano, Calabrese, which means you're hard-headed, or Bades, like part of me is. This is uh, mezze, mezze, poco, poco. It's like half and half. Half for Curtis, half for Frank Morano, right? It's kind of like that, yeah. But I was going for what you wanted, and I never thought about since he really don't want it known. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, if you no. didn't want something known, I wouldn't look it up on you. So you don't want to be and a rat. Because you don't want to be a rat, know, right? I don't want to be a rat, but, you know, me and you were the same age. We come from the same neighborhood. And mm, I don't know, respect or whatever the word is. I had more towards you than him. But I realized I was, especially a couple of days, the next time he was on the air, he put that thing out about the guy in Kentucky with the birthday party at work. Yes, yes, I remember yeah, that. You know, and, yeah, and then it was on again the other night. And I felt like, man, I don't, I don't want to fuck with the guy. Let me tell you something. I, tell you something, Bobby. You're a man's man, a stand-up guy. You believe that snitches get stitches and end up in ditches, right? Oh, yes, all the time. Yeah, and you know, Frank, he does those mob podcasts in which he's flexing, you know, in that uh, gigantor suit of his, that gladiator suit. <laughs> And you're a little afraid that some of his friends might come and bend your leg and stuff it in your pocket. If I'm, you... not, I'm not afraid of that. No way. <laughs> I'm not afraid of that. But I got to show the guy some respect because I do like listening to him. Okay. Well, respect, as my grandfather, Fidela Bianchino, would say. Hey, one yawn, fatali fata two, isafora kesakas, which means, hey, kid, mind your business. Get out of this house. Mind your P's and Q's. Was that a good translation? You know, broken English, broken bodies. Oh, this might be Frank himself in Staten Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Is this Frank Morano? Uh, Frank, Frankie G from Staten Island. All right, everybody Thanks. out there is named Frankie, right? Yeah, it's an Italian-American thing, named after Grandpa. Yeah, It's okay. That's why I refer to it as Staten Italy. But go ahead, Frank. It's good. I wanted to talk about a topic, but let me mention one thing. I heard John Katsimati that's being insulted by somebody on NY on NY New York One, and you know who insulted him was it was your it was your nemesis Gerson Barrero. He insulted Mister Katsimati that he called him a he called him a dummy and everything. Let me tell you something. I know Gerson Barrero. Gerson, I know you're listening right now. Herson, you used to live in the South Bronx, that's right, on Freeman and Simpson Street. Yes, Fort Apache. That's when you were a tough guy. And then all of a sudden you lost your roots, Herson. You went up to Westchester. You lived right near Andrew Evil Eyes Cuomo did, not far from Bucolic Buchanan, where you had the uh, nuclear power plant. <sighs> I know where you live, Herson. I'm coming for you, Herson. How do you like that? 
taking cheap shots. Let's see. He was my radio partner. He was my TV partner. I wonder if I've had more radio and TV partners or more ex-wives. Let me let me get the abacus here and start it. Uh, I don't have enough uh, fingers and toes to do that kind of counting. Anyway, uh, let's go to Norman in Canarsie. Uh, your turn to be heard here at WABC, Norm. Yeah, hi, Curtis. Yeah, I live in 105th Street here, uh, about a block and a half from where that firefighter was killed earlier today. And um, anyway, I put on the news tonight, and I saw Mayor Adams talk to the press about it. And I never saw a more fake, unemotional statement that he made. And he, he well, Norman, really Norman, let, let me, let me, let me, let me do an intervention. He was there at Brookdale Hospital. Imagine if this was De Blasio, right? De Blasio would have been walking, taking his uh, annual, his daily constitutional, you know, either through uh, Prospect Park or Greenwood Cemetery, going. So let's give credit where credit is due. Eric Adams responded as any mayor should do. We we certainly saw Rudy Giuliani do that dozens and dozens and dozens of times, especially in the aftermath of 9-11. So, yes, Eric Adams did the right thing. He was outside with the men and women of the fire department, their families, the retirees. uh, And he was telling us the circumstances of the death of this hero firefighter tonight. Don't forget his name, Timothy Klein, age 31, from Ladder Company 170 in Canarsie. The Curtis Lewa Show presents... Curtis's art from bipeds to quadrupeds and everything in between. Now, here's Curtis Lewa. Wow, the voice of WABC, Chris Libertini. Another week, another action by a misogynist, completely negating my wife Nancy, if not for her doing this animal welfare hour. You think I can answer all the questions that the callers have? What do you think it is with this guy, Chris Libertini, Nancy, that he refuses to put you on the ark? You know, that that's actually a super uh, great question. Like, even if I'm not on the ark, maybe some of our cats can be there. You know what it is, Nancy? I tell the guy every every time, every I say, you're going to put Nancy on the ark. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm writing it down. In fact, I'm writing it down twice, checking it twice. And the guy, he's just... He's a uh, he's a real fugazi. He's a real chiacchiaran, we say in Italian. A liar. Look, this this time, if he doesn't put you in that opening, put you on the ark, that's it. He's going to be swimming with the fishes in Jamaica Bay with concrete boots on. I mean, if you're the only one remaining on the ark, then there's, there's no future generation. So, you know, we're in trouble. Oh, that's right. I was imagining I was uh, Kurt Russell, escaped from New York. And you remember who uh, Chris Russell married, right, from uh, Laugh-In? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 oh, geez. So you can't even get what? your husband's trivia. You see, um, you see, uh, oh, oh, my gosh, what's her name? You see, uh, trivia leads to conversation. Frank Morano, who's coming up at 1, the other side of midnight, has said consistently, oh Trivia does not lead to further conversation. Oh, yes, it does. Look at this. I've got my wife t- 
twist it into a knot as if she is a knot of catnip right now for our 18 rescue cats in the 328-square-foot apartment that we share with them, the rescue cats, on the Upper West Side. I know what what she looks like, which I think is more important than knowing her name. Well, let me help you out. I'm going to throw you a lifeline. Goldie Hawn. Yeah, I said Hawn. (laughs) No, you said Chris Hawn. Heck no. You did not say Goldie Hawn. I heard you say Chris Hawn. I I I know I know her and uh, Kurt Russell. I I know their their relationship. Wow, they've been together forever. I know, isn't that awesome? That's good. Yeah, I saw them one time at 59th Street Columbus Circle, and they came up to me and like they, they wanted to have a conversation with me for like 20 minutes. You? Well, yeah. Kurt Russell said, "You know, if you'd have been around, I wouldn't have had to try to escape from New York." Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that was a good line. That was a good line. That was a great line right there. But anyway, we're going to go through a panoply of different animal welfare issues momentarily. But I want to give our numbers out. So all of you out there listening to the 50,000 powerful watts of sound, of which there are many devotees of pets, dogs, cats, and other animals who are part of your family, who are your friends, anything, anything involving the animal community is worthy of discussion and possibly... Uh, An intervention on the part of Nancy, who is our director of the Guardian Angel Animal Protection Division. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I'm going to take you to the city of Minneapolis in Minnesota, where we have seen now three, count them three times, where women demonstrators, I think they've been all women, Although I don't know what day it was and whether they were identifying as women or men. you got to be very careful in Minneapolis. But anyway, there were three demonstrators who in the course of basketball games and the Minnesota Timberwolves uh, are working their way through the playoffs who have run out on center court on the hardwood and have like, nailed themselves uh, to the uh, maple wood, uh, have uh, put crazy glue on themselves and effectively stuck themselves to the backboard so that the game could not continue. Who are they? What have they done? And why are they doing this uh, on a national scale? Oh, yeah. So so trying to advance a lot of these, um, you know, initiatives with animal rights. Obviously, it's very difficult to make headway. So, you know, for the most part, if you're trying to do it uh, pragmatically, it takes a very long time. And every day that, you know, you, you don't make a, a difference, there's that many more animals that are suffering. So I appreciate the way that they're doing it because, again, right, it's like a civil disobedience. They're at least bringing attention to the cause and hopefully, you know, doing something to get more people involved and more people aware of it. So I totally applaud that, and I think that's what you need to do. So if you're trying to bring attention to animal causes – I mean, you have to just go all out as much as you can. And they're, you know, they're pushing the envelope, but they're not doing anything inappropriate. It's like they're just bringing attention to it. So it's like kudos to them. Question, though, um, are they what you would call animal, uh, radical animal rights activists? Uh, where no, they no, might- no I, I wouldn't say they're radical because the radical is, is things that maybe are more, um, you know, things that would get you arrested. You know, things that you would be maybe like, a, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, maybe to uh, property or things like that. 
they're just, I mean, the equivalent of like, for, for example, like you look at baseball games and people who like to run on the field, it's like there was a time where they would film them on, uh, you know, the media and then they said, oh, we're not going to give them airtime and you're trying to deter quote unquote bad behavior. But, you know, again, and they're just being silly, but, you know, people who are trying to bring attention to a cause, again, there's only so much you can do, and you know what you're doing is right, but the reality is there's only so much you can do. And, like, when you when you realize you're fighting such an uphill battle, I mean, I, I'm all on board with doing anything that, you know, pushes the envelope to get attention to the right cause. Now, you do realize as a tried-and-true Yankee fan uh, that you have been. In fact, one summer you went to every home game of the New York Yankees in the old Yankee Stadium. You saw two perfect games uh, that summer uh, thrown by Yankee pitchers, right? Yes, uh, 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 David Wells and uh, David Cohn. All right. With that bona fide, those credentials, are you aware that the Minnesota Timberwolves are part-owned by A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez? I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, now, is there any connection here that uh, these demonstration, these demonstrators have targeted the Minnesota Timberwolves, partially owned by A-Rod, no longer with J-Lo, so he doesn't get the same attention any longer, or it just happens that he's part owner? I mean, yeah, I, I think it's probably just a coincidence, but I do remember when he was playing, uh, you know, when he would show up, as the you know the uh, adversary team, and nobody liked him, so he got booed all across the board. This guy, so I think he's trying to find a place to just fit in where people accept him. Yeah, a state where he's accepted, Minnesota. But anyway, <laughs> let's go to the flavor of the day. Now that there is legalization of marijuana for uh, recreational use, uh, it is the law of the state of New Jersey, the Garden State. They have their storefronts, licensed storefronts, open for business. Soon, New York State, similarly, will have licensed stores open uh, to sell marijuana for recreational use. I see that there is a study out here that deals with uh, pets and the rising marijuana use that presents second-hand risk to dogs and cats uh, and other animals that you may be sharing space with? Yeah, so so um, the... Um, a recent uh, study was um, trying to uh, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, put into perspective what uh, pets are experiencing in terms of secondhand smoking. Now, again, what's curious is, I mean, obviously all of these studies that, you know, can be done uh, regarding, you know, medicinal marijuana or recreational but no one's ever been super concerned about it. Now now they're talking about the pet sort of influence. I've never heard about uh, pet influence for, like, people who are smoking, you know, nicotine, things like that. So it seems like the timing of this study is very uh, curious. And, I, I mean, I don't think anything would be negative. They haven't really said that there's anything negative to it. They're just bringing up the fact that it exists. But, okay, so... And again, it's like an an odd thing. It's like I, I can't see why pets would not benefit from it, but they're not saying anything, you know, 
plus or minus, they're saying, oh, they just might be affected. It's like, yeah, but they might be affected by a lot of behavior of their, their owners. Anyway, we have a number of callers on the line. Uh, we'll give our numbers out one more time. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I'm licking my chops. Can't wait for the arrival of Dominic Carter before the top of the hour because I'm giving him homework about Thrive, that non-existent, fake, phony, fraudulent, fugazi mental health program that cared for nobody in six years having uh, spent $1.5 billion that cannot be accounted for. But let's get back to the animal welfare issues. Uh, and to the go, it's uh, Al calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC with uh, Nancy Sliwa, the animal uh, welfare uh, uh, expert here at WABC, Al. Yeah, hi, Curtis. Nancy, uh, I have to ask you a question about a dog. Um, 11-year-old wire-haired fox terrier, my nephew's dog. And uh, just wondering, the dog appears to be going blind. And I'm wondering if there's any kind of contact lenses or anything else that can be uh, utilized on an animal like that that might help. Nancy? Well, actually, that's a super great question. Um, I've never, I mean, with all the... um I mean, obviously, cats that I've had, I've never had any, um, you know, like that sort of give me a heads up about, oh, maybe they're potentially having that type of issue. But, I mean, I think most of these health issues with um, animals in general, you just have to be very cognizant of their diet. So, I mean, I think the same way that people, you know, in general, they, they just eat normal stuff, like they don't think about it. But you have to be very, you know, mindful of what you're doing. Now, a lot of these pet foods, they're not, you know, very great or helpful for animals. So I think if you start, um, you know, recognizing, I, I think a lot of people should be more mindful of what they're feeding their pets because that would really help them in general. Um, In terms of that, I mean, again, I've never had any vet that has given me a heads up about that, but... I mean, again, I think, you know, if you just make sure that the the pet is being taken care of the best it can, you know, that could be the best way to sort of uh, keep anything, any health issues at bay in general. Now, uh, off of Al's question, uh, Nancy, uh, you have rescued many cats when you get them from the shelter before they are destroyed, before their life is taken from them because they actually have a, um, uh, what you can call a, I guess you could call it a death row, right? Because they have all the cats and all the dogs there waiting to be uh, destroyed if uh, none are claimed within a certain period of time. Yeah, correct. Why is it that out of the many uh, cats that I see you show me in which you say, I want to rescue this cat, they're either blind in one eye or blind in both eyes or they have cataracts or things that we attribute to humans. Why is that? Well, I mean, again, it's, it's not super clear why um, the eye issues happen. Like, I know um, dental issues are um, very common, par for the course, with animals. Because, again, it's like you think about the idea of, like, well, why is it that when someone has a pet, like, when do you bring them to the vet? Usually it's because they have some sort of impending issue. them to the vet on a a yearly basis, like for checkups or physicals, they just develop issues they develop. 
And I think a lot of the the problems come from the foods that they're eating. So, I mean, sadly, again, the same way people's food, it's not geared toward keeping you healthy. Most people are probably getting a lot of ailments because they're just eating normal food that is making them, you know, unwell. And it's even worse for, you know, pets. It's It's like the worst of the worst with the food. So unless you're really cognizant of it, you know, your pets are going to develop these ailments, like, kind of par for the course. So, you know, you, you just want to be mindful of that. And I think you can be on top of that if you start feeding your pet, you know, healthy diets. Like, I, I've looked into a lot of the stuff. I mean, it's the stuff that we feed our cats, it's like, you know, you're creating the diet at home. And it's very simple. It's very basic. But just by avoiding some of these things that you get in, you know, normal pet foods, they're healthier for longer. So that's important. Our number is one 800 let us go to Carol in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard on the animal welfare segment here at WABC, Carol. Hey, how are you? Um, yeah, we have all kinds of animals hanging around, like uh, raccoons. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's crazy. There's all these animals, and uh, what are they called? Occupines or whatever they are? Uh, Oh, you mean uh, possums? Yes, the possums, right. We have everything hanging around. And I feel sorry for them because I want to take care of them. I want to give them food. But, you know, I I don't know what to do. There's so many of them around. Well, now, Nancy, you uh, used to reside in Bohemia and Suffolk County, which was uh, uh, to a degree like living in the country. And I know your mother lives out in Milford, Pennsylvania, and you were visiting with her this week. And, boy, that really is the country out there. Uh, what is a, a resident to do when they have all these wild animals coming onto their property? Should they be feeding them? Okay, I, I'm personally on board with feeding them and taking care accordingly. Yes, because yes, I, I, I mean, agree. what you realize is these animals, their environment has been encroached on. So now they're not actually aggressive. They're just, they happen to be in, you know, your environment. Like that's it. So if you have to feed them and they, they're almost like to some extent, they're a little bit domesticated because they get to know people, but I mean, there's nowhere else for them to go. So it's like, I'm totally on board with feeding them. Now it's like the next level of what you would do. It's like, okay, maybe you can, I think this is where like the cities. Uh, need to really take a proactive approach to a lot of this stuff with animals, like wild animals, like, you know, spaying and neutering them. So like the same way that, you know, we do things uh, with the garden angels, with the, the cats outdoors, all of this wildlife can be approached in the same way. So you don't have this overpopulation. But if you're recognizing, okay, this is, they're so in, they're so accustomed to people well, how could you not feed them? Like this is where their food source is, and everything's been cut off from them. So it's like I'm, I'm totally on board with doing that. Well, when we come back, we've got to discuss that time you and I were roaming about Williamsburg and Greenpoint, where you were born, 
uh, and we came across a huge feral cat colony in what looked like was a steel yard. And they were side by side with raccoons. It was raccoons and cats together as if they were part of the colony. And I got to ask you about that because we, we never had a chance to fully discuss that and naturally get to all of your questions out there, which there are many, at 1-800-848-9222, to the most requested, the most sought after, the most uh, called into portion of the many hours that I do at WABC here, the Animal Welfare uh, Show featuring my wife, Nancy Sleewa. Wow, the voice of WABC once again. Chris Libertini, having dissed and dismissed you, Nancy, now putting you on the ark, uh, earning his credentials as a misogynist, because there can be no other excuse. This has been going on for a month. Yeah, no, yes, that's the only rationale. Well, I'm going to have words with Chris Libertini, and I know somewhere in New Jersey you're listening right now, Chris Libertini, and there'll be hell of a price to pay. I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, let's go up to Capital Land in Albany. It's Donald. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare segment of WABC. Donald. Hi, Curtis. The question about the cat's vision, one thing that does work is carnivora, C-A-R-N-O-V, C-A-R-N-A-V-O-R-A. And there's a website, carnivora.com. They have a pet division, so before you do surgery or anything like that, I would try try the carnivora. Have you used it, Donald, uh, with your uh, cats? I have not, but I have friends who have used it. Hmm. Are you familiar with that at all, Nancy? No, no, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not, but, you know, I was just thinking about it. It's like with people, like anyone who has insurance, I think there should be a push toward including your pets on health insurance because that would make it much easier for people to start, you know, being mindful of their pet's health and not have to wait until there's an issue at hand. Now, I remember uh, you had adopted from the shelter before he was to be destroyed, euthanized Hercules, who was blind, completely blind, yeah. And then there is the cat who is with us now, Tuna, who looks like a kitten, but is actually like probably 17 or 18, who when you first brought her home from uh, animal care and control because they were prepared to destroy her too, she had a film over her eye. It sort of reminded me of my grandfather, Fidela Bianchino, who had cataracts. Then he had the cataract uh, surgery that removed it. He had to wear these bulky black glasses for like months and months and months. Uh, Tuna doesn't appear to have what I would call cataracts or a film over her eye any longer. Did you do anything to remove that? Well, no, I mean, with Tuna, I would say like uh, the only thing that, you know, needs to be done is like obviously every day making sure that you sort of clear out the the eyes, the nose, like any sort of buildup. But, I mean, my philosophy with all of these pets, especially the ones that we adopt when they're older, is if they're in pain or there's, like, some obvious sort of issue like that with them, I don't want to have them languish. But if there's, you know, they have life left to them, I mean, it doesn't matter that maybe they're struggling or a little slow. Like, that's okay. Like, you know, as long as they're okay, it's like, 
still with Tuna. Tuna is great. It's like she doesn't do too much, but she totally seems fine, and she enjoys all all of her interactions with us. So it's like, again, like you just have to gauge, I think, in that sense. It's like, you know, what would you want, <laughs> like yourself? Like she's fine. Like Tuna is great. And we have her go on her constitutional every day. <laughs> she goes on a walk, a stroll in the hallway. Uh, yeah. It's difficult for her, but she's actually shown tremendous progress uh, because it's good cardiovascular. It, it forces her to walk without falling down. Like she walks to the end of the hallway and then comes back. So it's like, yeah, so she has like a, a goal post every day, like something to do. Anyway, let's go to Tom calling from Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here on the animal welfare segment of WABC, Tommy. Hey, Nancy, how are you? Good. Curtis, uh, I know you've had better days, so I'm not even going to ask you. <laughs> anyway, it's funny. You were talking about blind cats. My, my wife, is. A, she also does TNR, and she's a rescuer. And um, we had, like, four cats outside at one point. Two of them were blind. But one, Each had a blind eye. Not, you weren't completely blind. And then we had one in the house that was completely blind and one with one eye in the house. And uh, I just thought that was funny. But they used to hang out with possums. I, it was the weirdest thing. My wife would sit there at night and wait. The possums would be hanging out on the fence, sitting there, you know, two or three of them, the babies and everything. And just wait. And my wife came out with the food. Then she would go away. And they would come over and eat the food. And they'd hang out with the cats. It was weird. Now, that's similar to what we saw. We were taking care of some of the colonies in northern Brooklyn and Greenpoint and Williamsburg. And we came across, both Nancy and I, a steel yard. And there were a number of cats and possums together. I mean, hanging out with one another like they were having a party. Uh, is that the first time you ever saw anything like that, Nancy? Oh, no. I've definitely um, seen that before. Like, um, you know, uh, the cats and raccoons. And, I mean, again, I think they all instinctively know, okay, they're in the same group. They're in the same you know, neighborhood, whatever, like, I mean, if you take a step back and you just look at what's going on, I think it really informs you uh, very much about how, you know, all of these animals are coexisting together in spite of these, uh, you know, the environment that's really difficult on them. So, I mean, it's important to recognize what they're doing. Like, this is something that you would think is against their nature, but it's like, it really isn't. It's like they're all in the same, you know, they have the same end game, like, oh, just to survive and exist. So it's like, it's great to see them interacting. And I think it's great that people see that because, yeah, they're not really adversaries. It's like, oh, they all have the same end goal. You know, it was amazing uh, when we were watching them. They were sharing food out of the same plate, which, I, you know, sometimes cats themselves, if they're part of a cat colony, a feral colony, they'll scrap with one another over food. These possums were side by side with the feral cats sharing the food in their own plates. I mean, and again, it's like with, with the cats that, for instance, like we've um, adopted into our households. You know, you have to socialize them, and then they have a... But they all have their own personality. They, I think every animal recognizes where their, you know, safe space is or where their home is or who's, you know, feeding them or helping them. So if they're outdoors, like, I mean, you can't really ascribe behavior to them. It's like they just know, okay, we're on the same team. Like, I'm not attacking you. You're not attacking me. I mean, it's just a reality. So, again, it's it's very good to sort of uh, present these types of stories because 
it dispels a lot of these notions like, oh, they don't get along. No, they do because they're forced to get along, and they do. Anyway, let's go to the phones. It's Karen in Woodbridge, uh, New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare segment of WABC, Karen. Hi. Uh, good morning, uh, Nancy and Curtis. Okay. Um, you make a great couple, by the way. Great team. Thank you. Great Thank team you. together. Um, I um, I have one question. I um, had a pregnant cat. Okay. Well, let me back up a minute. Uh, I had a female cat that my boyfriend had purchased and a male. And they did, uh, they did you know, uh, yeah. their thing. And, uh, okay. So their pregnancy is very short. Do you know how long it is? It's only like for, for the yeah for the the cats it's like um like fifty eight days so like two months or something. Right. Okay. So it seemed like forever before she was due, and then every time she went was in labor, she wanted to go into the litter box. I guess okay. because she felt pressure. But I I'm a nurse myself, and before I got home from the hospital. She had already, and I had made up a really nice bed for her, nice cushiony bed with, you know, blank, plenty of blankets. And um, anyway, she had already killed three of the kittens. Now, the uh, way she killed them was she uh, picked them up by the neck and just tossed them behind uh, pieces of furniture. My boyfriend was home at the time. And he was out uh, starting a barbecue. He had no, he just thought, oh, this is great. The mother's uh, nursing the baby. No, she was, it was like she was pretending. Okay. And then I come home and there's going to be three more kittens. And the same thing, she's going to try to kill them. So I got up very early the next morning. It happened to be my birthday. Um, And I took all three. And all three fit in the palm of my hand. That's how tiny they were. That's no tiny. fur. Yeah. No fur. I, I didn't realize that kittens, you know, that young don't have fur. So my my goodness, they're freezing. They're hungry. They don't have their mother, you know. And so I get on with the emergency vet. I run down. I get uh, emergency formula, just like uh, just like they're my babies. And um, I, I feed them like that. Now, my vet had said I, I wanted to be prepared for the delivery, and my vet said, oh, you don't need anything special. I said, should I have sterile towels? Should I have a sterile scissor, you know, like for the umbilical cord? You know, I'm I'm thinking like like human babies, okay? And I'm thinking it's probably very similar. And she said, no, but they, they bite the uh, umbilical cord, and then they swallow the placenta, and uh, they take care of all of this themselves. Well, let me tell you, she she was a beautiful, pure white cat. She did none of this herself. And all she wanted to do, so we we put them um, inside, inside their basket in our bedroom, and uh, whenever they would chirp, it sounded like they were chirping, you know, whenever they were hungry, the father cat came and he sat there. He would have made a better mother than, than her. Now, why so, do we uh, why do we think uh, why do we think that is, Nancy, that in this particular case, the mother cat with the first litter killed all her kittens at a very young age. And then, uh, as Karen mentioned, would have done likewise with the second litter if Karen didn't intervene and take those uh, young little kittens away. Well, I mean, I mean, has the, the mother cat been fixed? 
no, no. She was. Okay. Um, yeah, no. I mean, so because yeah. the cats that I've dealt with, um, for instance, on the outside, um, you know, living outdoors before they were fixed, if ever they did anything like that where they were actually distancing themselves from their offspring, it usually is because there's some health issue going on. So that could be the reason why that happened. It's like, you know, again, when they're living outdoors, I mean, they're again, they're very intuitive of recognizing the situation. Like, oh, every couple of months they can, you know, procreate and, you know, there's only so much they can do. So they're not going to take care of cats that are potentially, um, you know, uh, physically ill, and they have a good sense of knowing which ones aren't. So it could be that was the, the case. It's like this mother cat realized, oh, there's something, some ailment with these other cats. So, I mean, again, and again, it's not that it, it's not anything that couldn't be resolved by people, but, you know, within her, her own realm, it's like there's only so much, you know, she can do. It's like she's probably going to have, you know, more kittens come in like three months down the road. So, I mean, that's kind of part of the problem. It's like, but they're they're very intuitive. Like, I actually had um, the first cat I ever started taking care of outdoors. I remember, I, like, I was, uh, you know, feeding her, putting out the food for the cats out outdoors. And she, as she was eating the, the food that I put down, she was giving birth to kittens. This is before I got, like, right before I got her fixed. It's like, they're so, again, they're so pragmatic. Like, they recognize, okay, they might be carrying kittens, you know, three months from now. So, but I think they're very in tune with realizing maybe there's some ailment. So maybe that's a reason to, for instance, that mother cat, maybe she needs to go to the vet just for a checkup to see, like, maybe she has something because, you know, she could be passing something on to them, and that's what she's picking up on. Or could it be just like with uh, human beings that she is emotionally disturbed? <laughs> I mean, and you're right. And, again, you're right. That's so true on point. It's like the same way with every animal. They're so similar to people. So, I mean, it. I mean, society hasn't gone that deep with individuals, let alone animals. But, I mean, let's face it, a lot of this stuff is, you know, carries over <laughs> through species. So that should be something looked into a little more. Anyway, uh, let's go to the phones. And it's uh, uh, Eric, who's on the line patiently in Manhattan. Uh, welcome to the Animal Welfare Hour here at WABC, Eric. Hey, Curtis, now I know why tigers eat their young, huh? Um, gosh. Oh, like my cat. I've heard so much conflicting information about how long after they're out of the heat that you get them spayed. Yeah, like I worked yeah. at a vet's office. I've never seen a cat like this. Um, I finally was able to get my cat spayed. I had to cancel one appointment because she went she went in the heat the day before or the day of, of that I was going to take her. I, yeah. I, I've never seen anything like this. Have you? I mean. No, and actually, yeah, I definitely have. And what's crazy is. You know, when you look, I mean, like the information about how often they go into heat, it's like every four to six weeks. So it's like if you have a cat who isn't fixed, you're kind of looking for maybe some of the uh, physical cues or their behavior. But by the time you figure it out, it's like, okay, maybe it's like two weeks in or, you know, two weeks after. And then it's like, okay, then the next two weeks are going to be in heat again. It's, it, I mean, it is really insane that you have to find this, like, 
total point where they're not in heat because, I mean, that's the thing. You don't want to fix them when they're in heat because that's dangerous, but you have to be mindful of their behavior, and that's the thing. It's like, so once you see their behavior acting over the top, okay, it's like the minute that it sort of cools down, then you have – but, again, it's, I mean, to me, it really blew my mind, too. It's like every four weeks they go into heat, so you you really have to be on top of that stuff to figure out when to fix them. Let's go to John, patiently waiting in Highland Park. Uh, welcome to the Animal Welfare Edition here at WABC, Johnny. Hey there, Mr. Sliwa and Mrs. Sliwa. Um, I know that you've had better days, that's good, but I just want to call the Honorable Mrs. Sliwa there with the situation in Highland Park, New Jersey, Johnson Park Animal Haven, which is on the bank of the Raritan River, which floods two or three times a year. Uh, there's an animal haven that's been there for 73 years, but it's an animal haven of this type of so good for all sorts of the young people to see animals live instead of cartoons or whatnot on TV. It's, uh, it could be, I'm sure it's inspired many people. Uh, but anyway, there's been this kooky bunch of people, the, the Middlesex board of, uh, uh, something or other with, with uh, commissioners that's removing the animals. Uh, they've been fighting for this for a long time. Um, ha- almost all of them are gone. I was there today on a Sunday, and there's just hundreds of people. None of them know about it. It's just un- under the uh, under the uh, radar. And uh, those who do know about it saw this picture in a local paper here. Uh, of a goat, like just about drowning, and what it was a doctored picture as far as it was. So the goat that was on a in one of their fenced-in areas, and there was water there during one of the floods, uh, and it was actually it was mostly land, and then a puddle of water going into the fenced area, and the goat wanted to hang out in the water. They took a picture of it and cut it a certain way, so it looked like this goat was drowning and. You know, it's got liberal, some kind of weirdos, right, trying to do this. We know uh, several, really all the people that work there, and they're clubbing, caring people that go out in the middle. They're regular state employees, but they're top of the line. It's just, uh, it's, nobody knows about it. I don't know. I just want to let, alert you to it, and I know you have a lot of listeners in Jersey. It doesn't matter where they live. Anybody who crosses uh, this New Brunswick kind of area, they stop in. Like, yeah. Well, I tell you what. I tell you what. We'll do, John. Stay on the line. Let's get John's information so that Nancy can follow up on that because that seems uh, to be a very um, complicated issue with a lot of different factors in it along the Raritan uh, uh, Raritan River. Uh, so, Nancy, once we get you the information, would you kindly follow up to uh, John's inquiry? I mean, absolutely. And to his point, this is really where the problem lies. All these people doing right by animals in need who are facing uphill battles when all the effort and initiative is on them. They're doing everything they don't even need the city because they're doing it or the municipality, whatever. And then all of a sudden they're working against these people doing the right thing. This is where the problem lies. It's like 
we need to incentivize people who are volunteering for the right reason to make something happen in the right way. So it's like, I'm totally on board with that. Let's go to Charlie, who's calling from Chester, New Jersey. Your turn to be heard on the animal welfare segment here at WABC featuring Nancy Sliwa. Curtis, thank you for taking my call. I have something for you and Nancy. Uh, I believe the souls of plants and animals are the, actually the host of angels of the goddess and God. Hmm. What? They start their eternal life in a humble way as being ruled over by humans, but they come into their own in the spirit world. And if the humans are blessed, they will recognize and honor the angels. Also, beware, some of the angels are fallen ones. Mm. Oh, Diablo. Devils. Satan. Yes. Mm. Yes. So it even affects, in your mind, the life of a plant and the life of an animal? Yes. They're given intelligence and power and... Uh, Third dominion over, over eternal life. Well, that's certainly uh, true. The years, Nancy, you actually uh, got me up to speed on this, and that leads us to our other story, where they were forcibly having uh, monkeys ride dogs. I- is that correct? Yeah, so it's like, so the story was uh, talking about uh, one of these uh, companies that was uh, showcasing uh, monkeys riding you know, dogs and riding little motorcycles and stuff. It's like, you know, just for amusement purposes. And, like, rightfully so, I think there's a reason to call that type of industry out, right? Because it's like, if these are, quote-unquote, the workers for the industry, okay, like, at least if they're benefiting, they have something to gain by participating, but they don't. So I'm like, I mean, I I think that's the thing. But the other part is, like, it made me think about, well, what about all the animals who are being utilized in all these, uh, you know, testing situations and, you know, like zoo situations? Like, it's not that they're they're any better off. It's like, I think the point is any living creature that's forced, like, put in a situation, but they're not benefiting from their services – that's that's really the issue too. It's like, I mean, yeah, they're not really thinking about their their well being. So I, I think uh, a monkey riding a motorcycle is probably happier than the the monkey being tested on in a pharmaceutical company. But you know, hopefully they're benefiting or they're having like a, a good place to sleep at night or something. But again, like I, mean, I, I try to. Look, stuff in perspective like i don't really think that's so atrocious I, i'd rather them not be tested on well here's a listener who originally was born and raised in fairfield connecticut married a uh, woman in the ukraine decided when the uh, invasion took place by vladimir putin he was going to stay in liev in the western part of the ukraine he was not going to come back to the united states and he has called in regularly to give us updates so we welcome once again uh, Bert from the Ukraine. Uh, Bert, is this related to the many animal situations that we see taking place in the Ukraine? Hey there, I'm Curtis Nancy. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I know you touched on this um, a few times in the past um, as, far, as far as the, the pets and animals um, either not being abandoned because in, in the beginning, if you probably heard, they were left at the train stations, but they weren't really abandoned because everybody adopted them. 
So, um, and we see, I see dogs around, walking around, cats even. But there, I'll tell you one thing is, um, they really, really take care of their their animals here. Um, you know, it, it's just incredible. So, um, I know you you've talked about that. But one thing, last last week I was listening to you and Nancy, and about an hour after, probably like after Dominic went off, um, we had those bomb explosions here in Lviv, and um, and I, I I moved from where I was maybe a week ago or so, from where I was living, and I moved into um, an apartment structure where, where there's bomb shelters, maybe three four hops away, and with some friends and in laws around around me and. I pretty much um, have a dog now, and what happens when these explosions came came down? Um, the dog went is is partially deaf, pretty much deaf, but she felt it and she was following me. And, you know, it's kind of like let's go, let's go. And I was getting some people out of the the place down to the the bomb shelter, and um, it was incredible. Um, and I'll tell you, maybe Nancy knows what to. Maybe some suggestions as far as um, how to console. You know, I've been consoling her, and um, she's always she always sticks around me every time I. Could, could this uh, Bert, uh, who is on the line from Liev uh, in the Ukraine, calls us regularly to give us updates on what's happening uh, to his country there? An American by birth in Fairfield uh, County in uh, Connecticut. Uh, Nancy, would this be similar to what we see so many pets go through, especially dogs, on the Fourth of July when? People are firing off uh, cherry bombs, uh, uh, M80s, Roman candles, and it seems like the skies are just lit up. I mean, 100%. So it's like I think the only thing you can do for these animals who are potentially hearing this over-the-top noise is try to drown it out with something, you know, else-wise. So I think... I mean, if you have, like, maybe something you can put out on a loop in something, you know, like a YouTube or whatever. So an audio type of thing, because they're going to hear the noise. There's no question. But if you can play something, you know, in your place where it's, like, a little bit more calming or a little bit a better thing, because knowing that this is, like, the sound that they're going to be hearing in the interim so it's like it kind of drowns it out because the sad thing with the animals is they they hear um, you know you know their their ability to hear stuff is like eight or ten times more powerful than people so they do hear everything so the reality is it's like you know if you can't just put like little earplugs in you know on their ears you have to probably drown it out with another noise so it's like yeah probably just you know play something that goes for hours on end where it, it's a little bit more calming, but the reality is at least they hear something calming. Now, uh, if people would like to get in touch with you in the interim between uh, now and your return, same time, same place, uh, next Sunday night, 11 to 12, in the Animal Welfare Hour, how might they do so, Nancy? Well, they can email me, um, nancy at uh, guardianangels.org. So Nancy at guardianangels.org. And if, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you'd like to see uh, the work of Nancy and other guardian angels who have dedicated their lives to the Guardian Angel Animal Protection Division taking care of dogs and cats, just go to guardianangels.org, guardianangels.org. And uh, I've got a mission this week to straighten out Chris Libertini, who apparently likes being a misogynist by keeping you off of Noah's Ark. 
We're going to straighten him out, Nancy. Don't ask how. Just know it's going to happen. I mean, yeah, let me know what needs to be done. I'm all in. Oh, you don't need to know what I'm going to be doing to Chris. Mean- hey, that, that's better. Don't let me know. Yep. Meantime, up next, oh, I got an assignment for the gumshoe reporter. A man over the years was known as the best at doing the big dig to get news out of uh, elected officials who are like sphinxes, who would take the code of omerta because they, too, live by a code that snitches, get stitches. And end up in ditches. Happy, happy, happy Dominic Carter. As they say, when you want something from somebody, come with a carrot and not a stick. <laughs> so whereas generally I would be asking you questions for Frank Morano, who now uses you as a barrier to prevent me from talking directly to him and questioning him. Ah, I'm going to take advantage that WABC has what, in everyone's mind, is the number one gumshoe reporter here in New York City dating back two decades. I remember seeing you at Inner City Broadcasting, Percy Sutton's WBLSWLIR, in which you were their reporter out there with your microphone and naturally your logo and I'd come running up to you saying, interview, 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 please, please interview me. And you would always basically patronize me by acting like you were turning your recorder on, sticking the microphone in my face. And I never heard it on WBLS that I listened to religiously. So you sold me wolf tickets, didn't you? Uh, no, no, no. No, no. So now maybe the biggest journalistic challenge. But but one person I did issue a wolf ticket to was at Madison Square Garden, Flavor Flav. Oh, yeah, with the clock around his head. I'd yes. love to strangle him. And, and he said, interview me. I'm going to be a star. And I was like, yeah, right. And guess what? He, <laughs> turned, he turned out to be a star. And by the way, Flavors of Love there. What was that, VH1? Was that not the most disgusting program you ever heard him <laughs> copulating and fornicating with Brigitte Nielsen, who had been with Stallone? And who? Oh, yeah, that's right. The New York Jet Gastineau. But anyway. That's right. That's right. You see, you're trying to get me to digress. Possibly. This is the story that only you and you alone can cover because all of your colleagues in the fourth estate have failed to do so. And with the uh, mayor, Eric Adams, um, unveiling his budget tomorrow at the King's Theater, all redone in Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue. It's amazingly been recreated. Uh, He's going to touch on all different subjects, and I know he's not going to mention the new Office of Community Mental Health, which is what Thrive used to be. Because right before Bill de Blasio left Gracie Mansion, he renamed it. You know, when you want to sort of keep something going, you change the name. Like if you had a strip club or uh, uh, a disco had problems, you change the name. So they've changed the name to the Mayor's Office of Community Mental Health. It's got a budget of $225 million. Eric Adams has not appointed a director. So there's not even a shadow Charlene McRae, so to speak, somebody to even do anything. And yet they have a budget of $225 million. And you know, if, 
if I was lucky enough to become the mayor, I would have offered you that position because there's nobody knows about mental health issues who's had to deal with them within your family, see them in the streets, see them amongst uh, average working day people than you, Dominic Carter. But let's face it, it didn't happen. That's $225 million in addition to the $1.5 billion sold over six years that we've yet to see any results from. Can you do us all a favor and find out where did that money go? One and a half billion dollars for Thrive. Why did they rename it the Community Mental Health Agency? And why are they giving it an additional $225 million to do nothing? So that's the assignment? Yes. Okay. Are you up for it? I'm always up for the assignment. Are you ready to go to the King's Theater and be there in the queue because you're always – you're treated like Gabe Pressman used to be before he passed away. He was the number one go-to guy. Now it's you. He's got to go to you to ask the first question about the budget, and all you got to do is pop the weasel on him by saying, why did you rename Thrive? Give it two and a $250 million, and you don't even have a director there. Can you do that for all of us? I mean, we will be internally grateful to you. Okay. Or are you just going to become a sycophantodian <laughs> lackey of Eric Adams, like all the other reporters, huh? Well, you know, it is a new day. And in my day with Gabe, Marsha Kramer, you know, you just shout out your question. The new day is it's got to be on topic, the question and 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 the and city hall gets to but control the see, narrative. The reason you'll have to get an answer. Remember mm-hmm. when he came down from Albany and he wasn't able to win support for removing uh, the no bail situation. Mm-hmm. He chastised the reporters. He said, "How can you judge me? You? Why are you making that face? Well, because you are the skin. <laughs> oh, oh! According to him, you would be able to stand there in judgment of him." Your complexion is your protection go. on this. Here we go. Marsha Kramer, no. Gabe Preston, no. They're white. Dominic, <laughs> it's you. You got to find out what happened to the the one and a half billion dollars that the de Blasio stole. How's Nancy? Uh, don't don't obfuscate this. And the two hundred and fifty million you, dollars. I love you, bro. That Eric Adams has. I love you, bro. In a new reconfigurated Office of Community Mental I Health. I love you, man. Stick it to him. I Come love on. you. Hook him. Hook him, Dominic.